Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, January the 5th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. I got um I got something to disclose. You ready? I could get accustomed to this four day work week, Josh. <laughs> I could too. I mean <laughs> Rev and I were together late yesterday afternoon, and Rev said it's already Thursday. It is. That four day work week yep. is um is 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 twenty percent less work. Yep. I mean, obviously it's a it's a um it's a lessening of the load or a lightening of the load. That is the we always make these plans. I mean, everybody has a plan of what to do when they're forty or what to do when they're fifty. Reggie Armstrong on Thursday morning talks about the financial component of that plan. I've said it and I'll stick to it. I don't have any interest in not working. I mean, if I won the billion-dollar lottery, I don't have any idea what I'd say then. But odds are substantially not in my favor of winning the billion-dollar lottery. So I don't even consider that. I don't allow my brain to go down um, that road. But but I think that my life is going to require me to work. I mean, I just think to some degree um, I need to make money. I like spending money. I don't want to sit home and watch Fox News or MSNBC all day. I'm convinced convinced of that. Um, so my life is going to require me working. I've told Rev one of the, um, one of the steps down the road, I'd like to be, um, doing the show four days a week or doing a, you know, an alternate version in a, um, an undisclosed location one day, one day a week. You know, I think of Johnny Carson. Remember when he went yeah, to did. not, he, he did four shows a week and I never like, worked on Friday. Yeah. Leno. I think that's how Leno ended up with the job. Carson said, Hey, I'm a new contract. I'll do it. And I appreciate everything NBC's done for me, but, but I'm 70 and I'm not doing the show five days a week any longer. Um, I just think work is healthy. I mean, I, I really believe that. I think work is good for you. I think work keeps the, 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 the body young, the mind young, um, the bank account, um, you know, not so struggling, <laughs> if you know what I mean? I don't want to say well-funded cause I, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it's, it's not. But, but, you know, I love these people that say, well, I know exactly what I do. If I won the billion dollar lottery, nothing, I, I don't know. I mean, I, some would, I mean, without question, some would decide to do nothing. I, I would imagine traveling or taking care of family members or, or, you know, doing good by friends and your faith and your, you know, whatever, whatever there, there's a million different things out there. But, but I still believe that if I'd won, if I won the million dollar, the billion dollar lottery, I mean, that's life altering forever. Um, I mean, that, that would be blank you money in the nth degree. Um, I still think that I'd want to do this show. Just not sure I'd want to do it on Fridays, Rev. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to do it on Fridays. Yep. If I, if I netted 500 million, mm, I may go to up North and negotiate with the, uh, with the owners and say, Hey, I've come into some money. How much? Uh, good bit. Good bit. Um, enough. And, and enough. <laughs> there you go. Enough to walk out of here and never work. But anyway, I'm here to negotiate a contract that includes me having Fridays off. You fancy off. yourself just like Johnny well, I mean, Carson. Well, I mean, my, my dad died at 63. And and I I anticipated that my dad was going to do that. He had just begun telling my brother and I Thursday, hey, I think we're going to leave tonight. He loved the mountains. He didn't care much for the beach. He loved the mountains. Um but he would tell us late, and it was it was it was weird. I mean, it was almost this guilt that he had when he kind of told his two sons, who owed him everything financially, you know, in matters of of employment, and owning a business and whatnot. But he would kind of bow his head a little bit. Hey, I think we're going to leave 
you know, late this afternoon or early this evening. Well, dude, do what you want. You're the boss. I mean, you do what you want to do. But uh, but he would come back. Uh, he would get back to Pamplico at about 10, 15, 10, 30 on Monday morning. And he did that for about a year, and then he passed away. You know, that the, the point in his life that he was going to try and work a little less. Now, now, I'll tell you, when he was working, he was grinding. You know, half a day Monday, all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday, all day Thursday. I mean, it was his former self. But he would always... And, and it was almost like we knew where he was going, but he would say, I got some trucks I need to go look at. <laughs> I've got some property I want to go look at. I was like, dude, you're not going to work. You're going to have fun. Go have fun. Great story. You ready? I tell these stories a lot. Um, one of the commitments I made to Rev when I was hired to do this job is, Rev, there's two things I know I can do. I can be here every day, and I can be here on time. I mean, that, that, that's no problem. Whatever time we decide to start, I'll be here every day. And I'll be here on time. When I hired a guy, Robert Cahaley badgered me about having a body man with me on the campaign trail. I mean, I went the first six months of my campaign for lieutenant governor by myself. I mean, right by myself. And Robert worried about that. I mean, we'd walk to a um, to a venue for a prayer breakfast where six or eight or 10 or 12 candidates. You got Nicky and Andre and Henry and it's still relevant political. Tim Scott would be there and they'd all have entourages. And they would all have stayed the night before in a hotel. And I show up, you know, <laughs> just be by myself with a truckload of yard signs. And I would, um, you know, and Robert worried about that. Robert said, man, we look unprofessional. Uh, we are. <laughs> we are very unprofessional. <laughs> we look like what we are. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, lay that concrete block on top of those yard signs so they don't blow out the back of the truck. I mean, that's the way we, we kind of ran it. But anyway, um, we were at a, a steakhouse. Uh, Three couple of years before my dad passed away, and my wife and my father's wife, his second wife, not my mom, they were talking to one another about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And she said um, a little too loudly that during the winter, Jimmy and I may not get out of the bed until 8 or 8.30. And my dad heard it, and he went ballistic. <laughs> That's a damn lie. <laughs> and she said, Jimmy, we do. Last Saturday morning when it was 12 degrees and it was snowing, we, you, you fixed a cup of coffee and got back in the bed and you lay, I, I didn't do it. I mean, boy, he was <laughs> uber, uber embarrassed. And my brother and I were like, he, he, who cares? I mean, it's 12 degrees and snowing and you're in the mountains by yourself. Do your thing. Do what you want. But he regretted to the day he died that we had suspicions that he was going to the mountains to lay in the bed till eight or eight thirty, because that just that's not the way he wanted to be uh, remembered. So uh, anyway, I don't know how we got down that road. Um, yeah, if I won the lottery and you heard a recorded, well, let, let's say this, Josh, if there was ever a recorded version of Wake Up Carolina on Friday, and I'm nowhere to be found, I've come into some money I didn't expect. <laughs> I, I've won that billion dollar lottery, but other than that, you're stuck with me, and I'm stuck with you, I guess, because I got bills to pay and. And a life to lead, and it requires funding. And I don't think anybody's going to do it for me. I mean, I think it's mine and mine alone responsibility. I saw something yesterday that interested me, and we've jumped around. We've jumped around a good bit in this four-day week. I'm sure we'll jump around a good bit today. Scheduled to appear. We've got a busy show today. Scheduled to appear. Um, Russell uh, Fry, uh, U.S. Congressman from Horry County, who represents our district. He's normally here at seven thirty. I didn't even tell Rev this. we got a scheduling conflict. I think he knows what I'm about to say. Um, I invited anybody from city council willing to come on the show 
and explain their vote when it comes to the opt-in, opt-out program. But all over Facebook, all over social media, I was inclined to offer up an opinion. A couple of days ago, I passed because I wanted to give somebody a chance to come on this show and explain their vote, why they did what they did. Um, I'm going to challenge them. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. But Republican Brian Braddock has taken me up on the uh, on the request. He um, actually sent me a text message yesterday during the show. Um, when would you have time for me to come on the show? And I said, what about 7.30-ish on Friday morning? And I didn't think about Russell, so we may try to send a text to some of Russell's people to see if we can get him to come on at 7.25, and, and we'll work that out. I mean, those are friendlies of one another. I think they help one another in their uh, uh, campaign, so I don't think there'll be a problem a problem there. We've got um, uh, the delegation. I don't think Representative Jordan's in town. I think Lowe will be here. Don't know about Rickenbach. Not, I've not heard from him. And then at 9.05, we've got a feature, um, Pamela Evett. A new regular feature. A new regular feature. Um, she initiated some conversations with um, our people. That would be Josh. And um, <laughs> her people talked to our people. <laughs> and, uh, and out of that came an agreement that she wants to come on one Friday morning a month, if I'm not mistaken, at 9.05. That's so right. Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina, Pamela Evett, will be on at 9.05. So kind of a, a busy show today. I want to begin um, talking about, we, we, we ended the show yesterday with this weird conversation about mental illness, mental instability. Um, is, is We know that a person who was kicked out of a mental hospital and forced to live in a homeless encampment behind a, a big box retailer in the woods, and they come out during the day and night for that matter, Rev. And, you know, we, we don't know if they're intentionally harassing people or scaring or intimidating people. We know they do, and it makes some nervous. Some are not as nervous as, um, as I am about my wife and daughter in particular confronting or encountering one of these people. God bless them. I mean, you know, the mental illness is real, and some of these people genuinely struggle with adjusting and acclimating to the, to the real world. And then we kind of uh, we went down the weird road, Josh, of trying to make determinations about mental instability, you know, and we offered up an opinion or we, we offered up a conversation about if, if mental illness can be somewhat clearly defined, how about mental instability? And, and I often wonder, is the nation chronically mentally unstable and not able to self-diagnose itself? I mean, we're asking a nation of 330 million people to rationalize or make sense of a parent who believes their nine-year-old kid was born of the wrong sex and will allow that kid to enter into a medical contract to have, you know, uh, genitalia mutilated and a sex-altering operation on a minor kid. Is that mental illness? I mean, I believe, along with Ramaswamy and Vivek Ramaswamy, excuse me, um, Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis, that gender mutilation of minor children is child abuse. I think Jim said it. Somebody's got to protect the children. I mean, all parents aren't perfect. I mean, some parents abuse their kid. If a kid is gender dysphoric and the parent allows for that kid to have their genitalia mutilated and, and, and some you know sex-altering surgery performed, is that child abuse? More importantly, is that some in, in some weird way mental instability or mental illness? I don't know. I don't know how to diagnose that. It, it, it led me down the road of reading an article, and I know we got a call, and we'll get there in two seconds. Um, there was an article yesterday from the New York Times. Uh, Kathy Hochul, the governor of, um, of New York, 
is offering a new proposal, and I want to read it verbatim. You ready? I mean, it's very simple, very to the point. Pregnant people in New York State would have 40 hours of paid leave to attend prenatal medical appointments. What's, what's unusual about that? Pregnant people. Well, I mean, what should it say? Women. 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 Uh. So, so, so is Kathy Hochul mentally unfit? I mean, if Kathy Hochul decides in the name of wokeism or political correctness or being accepted by some of the, um, some of the elitist attitudes in America today, that, that she, when she asked her staff to draft this, it's, it's kind of a synopsis of the legislation. Uh, in other words, what does it say in a few words? Pregnant people in New York State would have 40 hours of paid leave to attend prenatal medical appointments. The word doesn't need to be pre- pregnant people. But right. it needs to be women. I'm arguing that Kathy Hochul is temporarily mentally unfit for the job. That that's to me that that's I mean I'm diagnosing that from way afar. To me. That there is no doubt about it. I'm making a judgment from afar. I'm making a judgment I'm not qualified to make. But but that's the conversation that I think America needs to have with itself. It's easy, Josh, to understand with some degree of clarity that 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 mentally ill man or woman who ends up in a homeless encampment, you know, scouring through the trash cans to find something to eat because society's decided that's not a big enough priority. We'd rather build roads and bridges and highways and libraries and whatnot instead of taking care or 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 managing the affairs of those who can't manage the affairs of themselves. Um, I mean, the mentally ill who have family support. I mean, I've heard this from law enforcement. If you've got a strong family, I mean, they normally take care of you. I mean, they, you know, they they take care of you. They don't let you fall through the cracks. But if you're mentally ill with no family support, very often you end up walking through the parking lot, scaring the bejesus out of people who are doing their daily affairs unintentionally. You're mentally ill. Kathy Hochul, to me, is just as dangerous as that mentally ill person scouring through the trash or intimidating pedestrians or shoppers or or consumers in a parking lot when she says, instead of women, pregnant people. Take a break. Back in a few. I want to shift gears. There's a story out there that I find very interesting. It's not in the mainstream. It's not top of the fold. It's not, you know, on, on the reel, so to speak, or the crawl on Fox or MSNBC. But there's, you know, you remember Francis Collins. Does anybody remember Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins? I mean, he was the head of the National Institutes of Health. I mean, Fauci was the front man. I mean, there's no, Fauci was Bruce. He was, you know, he was Tom Petty. I mean, he was out front. He was leading the charge. His ego wouldn't allow anybody else. But remember, there, there was a period of time that the public lost some trust in Fauci because we wondered if he had this complex. You know, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm in, I'm going to Johns Hopkins. I'm in charge of these things. I did. How dare I'm the science. I mean, if you're arguing with science, you're arguing with me. If you're arguing with me, you're arguing with science. There's no line of dealing. You know, I mean, it, anyway, he was he was very aggressive in, uh, in exclaiming himself the expert. And they began marching this guy out named Dr. Francis Collins, who was a grandfatherly sort of figure. I can't wouldn't lie to you. Fauci probably would. But that Dr. Francis Collins, I mean, to, to begin with, his name is Francis. I mean, a dude named Francis ain't going to lie to you, will he? Will he, Josh? No. I mean, not, not a grandfatherly guy like Dr. Francis Collins. Well, I mean, maybe we were found to be accurate because Dr. Collins was um, at a pandemic 
is basically they're doing these off-the-record postmortems. I mean, to their credit, they're doing, um, they're inviting some of the, you know, uh, the, the central figures during the COVID lockdown and the vaccines and whatever, and all these things that went along with the pandemic. And Dr. Francis Collins has been one of the more outspoken voices in saying, we got a lot of things wrong. I mean, I don't want to say we've got egg on our face, but we did a lot of things that turned out not to be the right thing. You would know better than I read. The guest that we had who formerly worked with CDC that we ran down, I think he may have been living in the Bahamas. Yep. I remember. He was a um, he was a clinician. Yeah. He was a doctor. I mean, he was very versed in uh, the, the mRNA vaccine science. Um, he knew Dr. Robert uh, what Malone. Was Malone who was um, contradicting some of what Fauci and Francis Collins were saying. But anyway, they had a summit um, in London where the global, the, the central figures of the global response to the pandemic got together and offer up, you know, kind of kind of their opinions. Um, they compared data, compared Atlantic. Sweden had someone there saying, ha ha, told you. Um, you know, they, they were severely criticized and, and chastised for deferring to natural immunity. I mean, they did some things, but they didn't go anywhere near. Nothing as draconian as what the Americans or the Westerns, uh, most of the Western world did in regards to COVID. But Francis Collins said, and I quote, got it highlighted verbatim. You ready? If you're a public health person and you're trying to make a decision, you have this very narrow view of what the right direction is. And that is something that will save a life. It doesn't matter what else happens. So you attach infinite value. Listen to this. You attach infinite value to stopping the disease and saving that life. You attach a zero value to whether this actually totally disrupts people's lives, ruins their economy, and as many kids kept out of school in a way that they never quite recover from. This is a public health mindset. And I think a lot of us involved in trying to make those recommendations had that mindset, and that was really unfortunate. It's another mistake we made, maybe the biggest mistake. Hmm. I asked the clinician who Cato, uh, the predecessor to Josh doing the job, I asked Cato, I said, Cato, ask Fox News if they've got anybody out there who is an absolute expert. I, I don't want to get lost in the, in the, uh, the science of COVID and vaccines and lockdowns and, and social distancing and what, uh, 14 days to flatten the curve. And I mean, I want to make sure we've got somebody on this show and the doctor, and I can't think of his name, Reb, but the doctor came on from the Bahamas. He had retired from the CDC and he came on the show and I asked a question. I said, when you are asked to manage a crisis and I'm talking about an influenza crisis, a uh, you know, a, um, a, an airborne disease, a pathogen, whatever, whatever. Um, how much value do you assign to stopping the spread? And he said, and I quote, all of it. And I responded by saying, so you don't consider the economy. You don't consider um, the psychological damage. You don't consider the lack of academic achievement. He said, that's not what I'm hired for. I mean, when I'm brought in, as a virologist, I am brought in to stop the spread of the disease. I'm not brought in to find balance in one and the other. And that's what happened, guys. 
I mean, you know, when you read some of this post-mortem accounting and you hear not, not a radio show host who does very little about virology or, or the science of mRNA vaccines, but when you hear somebody like Dr. Francis Collins, and it convinces me that we were right, our initial inclinations about Dr. Fauci was right, a power monger, probably on the take, probably on the, no doubt a power monger. I mean, no question about that. No question Napoleon complex. But may have been probably let, let's 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 go there. Probably somewhat on the take, both personally and professionally. But you've got this other guy that basically says, "Hey, man, looking back, looking back, we probably assigned all the value to stopping the spread, none of the value to what we were doing to the economy, doing to uh, people's lives, doing to the kids and their educational opportunities, and how far they'll be behind." And how long it takes to um to catch up? I found a complimentary article to that, and um it's kind of an interesting article. It was in well one of these Scientific America magazines. It's more about experts and virology and whatnot. Um, it's it's a study done by the academics at Washington University, not the football team. They play Monday night, but rather um, some of their academics. And, I mean, I don't want to bore you with all the, the details because I would get lost and you would get lost. But it talks a lot about post-infection, uh, comparative evaluations, hospital admissions, adverse health outcomes. They basically contrasted the personal influenza seasons and the COVID season, uh, 20 and 21, and, and primarily is what they're they're talking about. And here's what they've landed on. Once again, I'm not going to go through every gory detail. I mean, it would, you could spend it a million ways, but in essence, here's what they found of a hundred people who went to the hospital with seasonal influenza during COVID. Now we argue nobody had the flu, but there were still some who had, had been diagnosed with the flu of the hundred people who had the flu severe enough to be hospitalized. 16 died in the next 18 months. I didn't say everybody that had the flu. Everybody that had the flu, and it's normally real unhealthy and real old people. I mean, that's it's almost exclusively that sub subsection of our population. If you're old and you're feeble and you've got comorbidities and you get the flu, there's a pretty good chance you don't recover like like a younger, healthier person would. So the hundred people who had the seasonal flu and went to the hospital, sixteen of those one hundred died, or an average of 16 per 100, died the next 18 months. Use that same statistic with COVID. Of 100 people who had COVID to the point of having to go to the hospital, 24 died out of the next, over the next 18 months, out of the 100. So 18 of 100 people who had the flu to the point of having to go to the hospital died in the next year and a half. Now, it doesn't say whether they died of the flu. They just died in the next year and a half. I mean, it might have been the flu. might have been complications of the flu. They, they may have gotten a car wreck. But, but there's some, the University of Washington done a, a lot of research here. So, so if you had the flu during that period of time and you went to the hospital, there was a 16% chance you die in the next year and a half. If you had COVID and you went to the hospital, there was a 24% chance you died over the next year and a half. Here's what else they included and the information. If you took the vaccine, you ready? 
This is so interesting to me because we're comparing flu and COVID. If you took the vaccine, there was the, the number of people who died from an adverse reaction to the vaccine per 1 million recipients is 25.5. So of every 1 million people who were vaccinated and had some sort of adverse reaction, on average, 25.5 of the 1 million people who had an adverse reaction died. For those who had an adverse reaction to the flu vaccine, for less than one half of 1%. So the flu vaccine, I mean, it's irrefutable. It's safe. I mean, there is no, go get it. Don't go get it. That's your choice. That's your call. The flu vaccine poses no imminent threat or danger to your safety or well-being. You absolutely can't say that about COVID, the vaccine. You can't say the COVID vaccine was safe compared to the flu vaccine It was extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous. Take a break, back in a few. See, the leftist media would accuse the last segment of bringing up, you know, something that's old news. I mean, COVID's, uh, we've learned, we've moved on, we've Mm -hmm. done the best we can to adjust and accommodate. their best decisions at the time with the the information we had. This heroic medical professionals, they did everything they could to keep the American people safe. They did everything they could to stop the spread of the virus without considering at all the lives of people who were not at risk. I mean, Josh was not at risk. I mean, Josh, the risk of Josh wrecking his car on the way to work and passing away or or deceasing as a result of was higher than getting COVID and having serious complications to the point of losing your life. I mean, that's just the practical reality. I think Francis Collins is who we thought he was. I think he's an honest broker, and I think in retrospect, he's regretting some of the things they did, and he's basically admitting that the reason they made these fatal mistakes was because they gave infinite value to stopping the spread and zero value to keep people keeping their lives together, and that's an absurd, and it goes back to the question I asked the doctor who was a guest on our show. Uh, when you're brought in in some sort of crisis management situation, how much do you think about the economy, the jobs, you know, the lives, the routines, the educational system? Zero. None. Francis is, is, is admitting that. You combine that reality. Because to me, that's kind of a mea culpa. I mean, that's coming clean. I mean, those are his words, not mine. When, when he says, uh, it's another mistake we made, maybe the biggest. I mean, that, that's a guy that sounds a bit remorseful. And, and I, you know, tip of the hat to a guy in a tough place. And, and, and after thinking about it long and hard and doing some self-evaluating and looking at some other data and analytics saying, you know, um, we probably got some of this wrong. In fact, we probably got a lot of this wrong. Um, now, now, the crazies were the one that said, we got to find some balance here. I mean, nobody's denying the danger of COVID, but we've got to keep the world turning. I mean, we've got to keep being functional people in a normal or as normal as we possibly. Sweden, I mean, that's what Sweden did. Sweden made some adjustments, but Sweden deferred to their minister of medicine, minister of health, and he basically said, the Western world is the outlier. Nobody's ever tried to do this. We've always trusted herd immunity. We've tried to protect the vulnerable. We've allowed those who aren't high risk to go live their lives and do the best they can. We want them to be careful that they, in 
you know, if they inhabit a home with a person who has a serious issue, we want them to be careful around those people. But then you add the data about the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine. I mean, if somebody said, hey, go get a flu shot, it's safe. They're telling you the truth. I mean, they're absolutely telling you the truth. Josh, your father is a doctor. You told me off the air. I, I don't want to, you know, um, make public your private conversations, but you've told me off the air that your father's biggest concern was there was not much history on this mRNA vaccine. That's right. He encouraged me not to take it because the thing about mRNAs is it affects your DNA, which could have long-term side effects that you you don't that that don't uh, appear for a decade or longer. So that was a reason, you know. He's like, well, they can't say that there's no side effects, especially with the mRNA vaccine. And and now the University of Washington has done a study, and and once again, long-term adverse impacts from COVID and seasonal flu. I mean, that's the official subtitle. Uh, Long-term adverse impacts from COVID and seasonal flu. And a lot of us don't know exactly what post-infection and comparative evaluations and hospital admissions and adverse health outcomes, um, you know, uh, major body organ systems. I mean, they've got so many subcategories in in this report, but they basically are, are saying that if you had the flu, to the point of going to the hospital, for every 100 people that fit that bill, that uh, you know, fit in that category, 16 died in the next year and a half. Take that same <sighs> argument, if you had COVID to the point of having to go to the hospital, 24 of those people died. So COVID was more dangerous than the flu. I mean, if, if you were vulnerable, I mean, if you were obese, if you had diabetes, if you're older, if you were in some of these... um. Some of these high-risk categories, COVID was more deadly. I mean, there's no doubt 50% more deadly, right? 16, 20, I mean, just, you know, it's a good bit more deadly. But for the majority of us, it was not very threatening at all. It simply was not. And, and the point I'm trying to make is if you were in, if you were obese, if you had comorbidities, if you were old, you probably needed to take the chance, assume the risk of taking the shot. The point that Pfizer made, and the CEO from Pfizer said this over and over and over, you're not taking much of a risk. Well, you were. Now, the numbers now clearly show. In fact, of the 1 million people who took the shot, 25.5 died. And that's, that's, that's from the adverse report system. I mean, that, you know, if you took the shot and never had a problem, you took the shot and never had a problem. And you probably weren't going to have a problem anyway. But, but if you had an adverse health, if you had an adverse reaction to the COVID vaccine, for every 1 million people, 25.5 died. 0.46 of people who took the flu per million died. So the flu vaccine is incredibly safe. How effective? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any guidance. I've never taken a flu shot in my life. I've had the flu twice, and it kicks your butt. I mean, it does. It kicks your butt if you get the full-fledged seasonal flu. Never had a flu shot in my life, so I don't know how effective or not it is. They say it makes you feel kind of bad for a day or two, but you've got that vaccine, you've got that antibody, you don't have to worry about getting getting the flu. And, and years, I think they have to guess way ahead of time as to which strain will be the prevalent strain, and they make that decision. And, and sometimes they get it exactly right, and sometimes And sometimes not. they don't. Here's the question I want you to pose, or here's the question I want you to ponder. I'm posing, you ponder. Breeze is the resident... <laughs> 
expert on they're doing it on purpose. I mean, they're absolutely doing it on purpose. I want to go back to Francis Collins and his comments. We gave no value to the disruption of normalcy in everybody's life. How much of the reasoning was the election? The public health sector. I mean, I'm not saying that they're, you know, that they're not political operatives at all. I don't, I don't buy that. But, but how much, because Trump's the president. I mean, you can't blame it on Biden. I mean, Trump runs, you know, he, he, he kept Fauci. But, but how much of this infinite value given to the spread of the disease, zero value given to the maintaining normalcy in our lives, and, and not only lives, you ready? And in 2020, our lives included what? A presidential election. How many health experts and politically motivated people used COVID to disrupt the normalcy, not just of our lives, but the 2020 presidential. I mean, we'll never know the answer to that. But you've got to be unbelievably naive to think that somewhere, someone didn't have some very calculated conversations on, wow, this may be the opportunity. This may be the way to completely change voting tendencies, voting habits, and that's where we know the statistical anomalies came. I mean, if people are, if their lives are inhibited from doing what they normally do, it would stand to reason that voter turnout would be less than normal, wouldn't it? I mean, if people are afraid to go out and they want to stay home and they want to be isolated, they don't want to be around a bunch of people, I mean, it would stand to reason the last thing on their mind is casting a ballot. Common sense would tell you that. Au contraire, my good friend. Voting in certain precincts went through the roof. <laughs> Explain that. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. This is the good part of that equation. And the four-day work week, Rev and I have agreed, we could get used to that. Oh, man. We could get used to that. I've definitely been thinking about that. I like that. 20% less work, just don't like 20% less pay. <laughs> no, can't, can't deal with that. There, there no, you go. No way. Um, but if I'm reading kind of what you're saying here, sounds like you, you're saying that they may, you might have some evidence that they may have done this on purpose. Well, I mean, Francis Collins is basically arguing, we got it wrong. I mean, we got it wrong. Giving infinite value to stopping the disease and saving lives and attaching zero value, zero value to whether this actually totally and completely disrupts people's lives, ruins the economy, kids kept out of school, forever becoming um, you know, deficient in their educational opportunities. We got it wrong. Now, what Collins will lead you to believe, hey, man, it was an honest mistake. I mean, we were doing the best we could. Some of our listeners don't buy that. They don't believe it was an honest mistake. They believe these people are plenty smart to know exactly what they were doing. My point is, I mean, I buy into that. I buy into they knew exactly what they were doing. Was it to make money for Pfizer? Yes, absolutely. Was it to support Big Pharma? Yes, absolutely. Was it condition more people to conform to the controlling influences of government? Yes. Here's the question. Was it to affect the outcome of the 2020 presidential election? Hmm. That's the question I'm posing. I mean, I don't believe for a second that Francis Collins is apologizing 
and believes that nobody in his camp, I mean, everybody in his camp was naive. I mean, everybody was motivated by the right thing. I'm not saying Collins, because I do believe this, guys. I believe he's one of the honest brokers. I'll say this. How many times have we heard Fauci apologize for anything he's done? Zero. Haven't. I mean, he says, in essence, we probably should have done a little more, given me a little more control, me a little more power, me a little more influence. Collins is saying, hey, man, we got a lot of this wrong. And you're not, I mean, and Collins is a smart man. So Collins driving down the road in his car by himself, contemplating how important this issue was in American history. Of course he goes, uh, a lot of these folks did it on purpose. I mean, a lot of it was to basically, you know, make enormous amounts of money for Pfizer and their, their shareholders and big pharma. And I, I guess the healthcare community in general, but, but how much was it about affecting the outcome of the election? Let's go to the phone. Barry and Chirag. Good morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, yeah, Ken, I think it was uh, used to affect the election. Uh, anything goes when it comes to getting Trump out of office. Well, Barry, whether, whether it was or not, it did. I mean, there, there's no denying that. I mean, it did affect the outcome of the election, period. Absolutely, it did. And it affected our lives for the rest of our, <laughs> rest of our life. Um, with with the shots and all the people that died uh, with the shots. And that'll come out eventually. It all works itself out. Hey, Ken, I need you to ask uh, Russell on the record, is he willing to shut the border down or shut the government down? Um, one or two things has to happen in the upcoming vote for the CR. Uh, I'm totally against the CR. I work for the government, so I want it shut down because the border is the most important thing to me right now. So if you can get him on the record, if he will go on the record, uh, either shut the border down or shut the government down. I really appreciate it. Thank you all. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. We're communicating now with Russell Fry. He'll be with us. Normally it's about 730, maybe a little bit early today because I extended an invitation to anybody on Florida City Council who supported the opt-out, opt-in version of the water bill fiasco and Brian Braddock accepted, actually reached out to me and said, I'd love to come on and explain uh, myself. I think Brian's had a bit of a change of heart, and he'll be with us somewhere around, we think or expect, 730. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. What a news flash. You know what, man? Nobody understands the evil that we're going up against. And let me tell you something else. We're seeing these same people Every day when you go out in Florence, every day when I go out, whenever you run across somebody that had anything to do with a hospital that's an administrator or whatever, know what he did to you. Know what he did to your family. But you see that these people were forcing these doctors. I don't blame the doctors so much. They were scared for their career. I knew doctors at the beginning of the pandemic that were saying that ivermectin is not stuff would work. And then all of a sudden they make a drastic about face but they got threatened with their career. So you're seeing these evil people every day. When you see the mayors that shut you down, the city council people that shut you down, either they were lackeys and fools for believing it, or they were all part of it. When you sit there and you see some of I had friends of mine that were getting ganged up on by Democrats that were telling them that they were, they were going to kill them and they didn't get, you know, you're killing us, man. You haven't gotten your shot. You're trying to kill us all. You're going to be a, you're you're an evil person because you aren't getting your shot, and those fools may have believed it, but then you had them all. I mean, you see you see these people, and I don't know why people 
occupied the Palestinians' land, and they talk about doing homework, but they don't even look on You can Google it. Jews have been in that area of the world forever, forever. There's never been a Palestinian state. There's never been such a thing as a Palestinian state. But they go on there, and they keep putting that evil lies out there. I mean, everything that they're doing is an evil, evil lie, and we aren't even mad about it. But we're sitting there taking it, and it's just it's just flabbergasting to me that people didn't see this all along. And, and when they, and like I told, tell my Democrat friends, if the, if they could do it to what I guess you would call our candidate, they could also do it to your candidate too. And, and I don't know what it's going to take. And here's a question I'll have for you, Ken. I mean, just I mean, it, it's not a. I mean, but let me ask you this: Do you think that the American public now? will be willing to be duped again by some other crazy-ass thing that they may try to use. And they will. It won't be maybe necessarily a COVID. But do you think we're going to sit back and let them do to us again what they did to us for the past three or four years? Or do you think people, when I say fight back, I don't necessarily mean with your fists, but where people just say, no, we're not going to do it. I mean, do you think we've got enough people in America now that were, that were awakened by the evil, satanic, daggled uh, leftist policies. These aren't liberals. A person, if you call a liberal, I'm a liberal. I believe in liberty and freedom, and I don't trust my government. And the hippies were that way, too. The hippies wouldn't have fallen for this. Not the ones back in 1968 and 69 in Woodstock. They wouldn't have fallen for this crap. They wouldn't have put all of this in their system. But these people have murdered Americans. They murdered us, and nobody's mad about it. I mean, it just blows my mind. But do you think that we'll be dumb enough or just weak enough or just punk-ass sissies enough to let them do it to us again? Because I didn't close out my, my business. I daggled at it like I was daggled running the speakeasy. We had to do a coded knock on the back door. But I wasn't going to close it now because I just we thought about it. But I told my wife, I said, you know what? When the government tells you something, you need to realize they're lying every single damn time, and they were. But I wonder if people will let them do it to us again. It's my question. Do you think that, what do you think, Kim? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I mean, we're go, I want to go down a dark hole here for a second, and I'll stop because I don't want to go because you folks, I'll lose any credibility I may have with you or not. There, there's a mindset out there in the internet, and I mean, it's it, you got to go read some of the Curtis Yarvin things, some of the Peter Thiel. But these guys are anarcho-capitalist. Uh, they, they are anti-cathedralist. They, they've coined the dark enlightenment. Uh, you know, the, 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 the era of enlightenment led us to a better place. Mankind became, you know, um, I, I don't know. Man enjoyed a better quality of life as a result of the era of enlightenment, uh, human rights and dignity and the right to vote. Anyway, um, it, it produced capitalism, produced a lot of innovation, um, entrepreneurship, eradication of disease and all this. But there's a movement out there called, um, I mean, it's referred to as kind of an anti-cathedralist movement, but they, they refer to themselves as dark enlightenment. Uh, Curtis Yarvin would be one of these guys, and he's coined the phrase, the cathedral. And I'm crazy enough to go in that sandbox and, and believe I belong. Now, here's their theory, Breeze. Their theory is that the ones who have been conditioned to conform 
are, are unsalvageable. I mean, they are who they are. I mean, they, they've been conditioned. They're nervous. They're afraid. They're beholden to the government. I mean, they've created such a relationship with the government. Um, it would be, Breeze was talking about doctors. If I profess to be the mayor of Realville, and, I, and I'm sincerely consistent, you know what I got to do, Rev? I got to accept where doctors found themselves. I mean, their livelihood. They were educated to be physicians. The medical care community decided this is where we're headed. And if you're in Realville and your career is dependent upon, you know, that tide going that way, you can't be the cowboy. You can't be the outlaw. You can't be the renegade. And I think Breeze understands that, and I certainly understand that. I mean, I can't say I'm the mayor of Realville except when it doesn't apply, you know, to things that I believe in or things that I believe are right. Now, here's what the dark enlighteners believe. You ready? And this is out there. You ready, Josh? You'll like this. The dark enlighteners believe that the only way to put government back in its place is to starve it for what it most essentially needs, our money. Our money. And the dark enlighteners believe, these who have coined the phrase, and they believe in the cathedral, and they think they're, they're, there's kind of a group of people that are growing called anti-cathedralists, they believe there's a day coming uh, sooner than later. Don't know. Uh, five years from now, 50 years. Don't know. Might be 100 years from now. But they believe that the the minority of people who just absolutely distrust the government to the extreme are getting larger, and the government's kind of fanning that flame. I mean, they're adding energy to that. They're, they're, not, they're not becoming more trustworthy is a basically what I'm saying. But none of this matters as long as they're funded in the way they are. As long as the Fed's able to borrow a trillion dollars and sell government debt, and they have, I mean, it's a little bit like the golden rule, Rev. He who has the gold rules. Well, the government has the majority of the gold. They have the majority of the money. Along with the money comes the, the influence and power. The dark enlighteners believe the only way, the only way to put government back in its place is for enough of us to agree to not fund what the government decides to do. Now, what does that entail? I mean, Brian Braddock will be with us in a bit. We're talking about, you know, local funding of a water system and, you know, what the water bills are. I don't have any idea what that looks like. And, I, and I'll say this. The dark enlighteners don't care. But I mean, they're anarchists to, to some degree. They, they, you know, no holes barred is kind of what they see. But they, they do believe that eventually the minority becomes so intense, so motivated, so consumed by their anger toward the government, they refuse to participate in funding the government. Now, will the Department of Justice put in prison 75 million Americans? for not paying their quote-unquote fair share? I mean, that, that, that may be the pivotal question. But when Bree says, you know, what do you do? I don't know what you do. I can't offer up any advice there. But when I go down these dark rabbit holes and I fancy myself as somewhat of an intellect and, and I want to hear what really, really smart people believe, and I'm talking about out of the mainstream. There is no doubt this narrative is completely and totally out of the mainstream, but it's there. I mean, it, it's there, and it's gaining momentum. Take a break. Back in a few. How insulting is that? Yeah. I mean, a, a, after such a profound and, and provocative delivery, we're insulted by our voice man that I think we pay a little money to insult us. <laughs> he, he, right, just, he just says the words that we send. Good deal. And, Good deal. and who sends what words, we'll never know. But, you know, that's the way it rolls. So if, if we're to kind of dig into this and believe 
the things you're finding and reading. I mean, it almost sounds like this whole thing's organized I, in a I'm way. I'm not asking you to believe what I'm finding and reading. I am saying that there is an organized conversation out there, out of the mainstream, to Breeze's point. Uh, that, that, that's what I'm offering. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I read that because I find it so curious and interesting. A lot of people wonder. You know this, Reb. A lot of people wonder, Josh, what they can do to oppose their government. The only thing they believe they can do today, and I'm talking about, I don't know what percentage it is. Is it half of America? Uh, to some degree, I would say half of America are okay with the government kind of taking and maintaining, controlling more and more facets of our life. The other half say, screw that. I don't want any part of that. I mean, that's not what I signed up for. The only thing we've done officially thus far is vote for Donald Trump. I mean, we didn't vote for Trump because we think he understands NATO better or he understands immigration policy better. We believe that he represents a political disruption. And we've got to disrupt. We've got to, we've got to overthrow the status quo. We've got to get those bums, throw the bums out, you know, drain the swamp, whatever, whatever verbiage you want to use there. And Trump was our opportunity to act upon that impulse. But, but that doesn't fix things. And, and what the dark enlighteners are arguing is the only way to really get government's attention, to put government back in its place, if you think they've gotten out of their place, and we're talking about COVID, you know, the government basically told American businesses, you can't run your business anymore. We'll tell you when you can open back up. You've not done anything wrong. You're not violated the code. You're not, you know, breaking laws. But we've decided on our own volition in 2020 that you guys who run those businesses, you ladies who run those businesses, you can't open those businesses because the government says you can't. And that brought about a lot of energy. And a lot of, now a lot of people are concerned about, okay, may, maybe I'm doing the right thing, maybe I'm not. But in the postmortem, after the fact, when we're, when we're gaining knowledge about things that, that we know weren't true, we're absolutely unfounded. We're beginning to kind of, I guess, Rev, formulate an opinion. And some of the dark enlighteners believe the only way to put government back in its place is to starve it for the one thing it depends on every American. So, so let, let's play the counter argument. Let's say 100 million Americans decide not to pay their taxes, local, state, or federal. I'm just not doing it. I mean, to hell with it. They lock me up, they'll lock everybody up. They'll lock 100 million of us up. Does that get the government's attention? Does the government put 100 million people behind bars? And how does the government operate? If 100 million people are behind bars and not productive workers and employees and taxpayers. I mean, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. What I am saying is there are conversations in, in some of the dark corners of the Internet with really smart people. You and I laughed at Bitcoin. I mean, we did. We laughed at Bitcoin. That's crazy. I mean, there would never be a competition to a dollar. Well, I can tell you this. Every organized force is trying to stop crypto from becoming an alternative currency to the dollar, I don't think they can. So, so when you talk about the contrarian nature of the constituency, I think cryptocurrency is a very interesting model to follow. Mm -hmm. um, the government, Jamie, Jamie Diamond, until they figure out there's money to be made, and then they'll try to try to buy some of these, you know, crypto firms, and 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 I mean, they, they'll want to confiscate control of it. Uh, you know, poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he, <laughs> he rules, rules everything. everything. So Jamie Diamond and J.P. Morgan said, Bitcoin's nonsense. And somebody down the road said, I don't know if it is or not, Jamie. I mean, here's what's happening. Well, let's buy it. I mean, let, let, let's buy it. And, and that's kind of the way. So, so, no, I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm saying that some, when Breeze asked that question, 
I'm referring him to some people who believe that that is indeed um, the answer. We have with us Congressman Russell Fry. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Happy New Year. Doing very well. Yeah, Happy New Year to you and appreciate all you did for us in 2023. Look forward to um, our gatherings and our and our conversations in 2024. Russell, I want to offer, I mean, I'm not a member of Congress. You are. I'm a guy with a radio show who has a loud mouth and a lot of opinions. I am not in favor of additional funding for Ukraine. I am in favor of doing whatever it takes to secure our southern border. I'm a constituent of, a constituent of yours. What would you tell me if I have those two uh, opinions? Well, I think, I mean, right now, I mean, it is very nebulous on what the text looks like, right? So if you truly got a permanent win on the border, I think people could live with the Ukraine thing. Um, I, I do. I, I conceptually think that maybe not everybody, but a lot of people could if you got a permanent win and a permanent fix on the border. So, so the what, what, is, what is a permanent? I mean, I'm interrupted. I'm sorry, but, but and you're aggressive on immigration. I mean, you believe that that is one of the great challenges in America today. What is What does Russell consider a win on the southern border? I think you need to finish construction of the border wall. I think you need parole reform, asylum reform. I think you need to reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy, which was a complete success under President Trump. Those are things that are wins. Do I think that they're going to get there? I don't know. Um, And so to me, because of the numbers, I mean, 300,000 just last month is an all-time high. I mean, that is is 90% of the population of Horry County. That is more people that live in Florence County that came in through our southern border just last month. So we have to fix this. And the, here's the thing. The, the, we, we passed a great bill, Ken, back in the spring. Um, it fixes a lot of things for sure. But we don't have to pass a bill to fix some of these problems, too. I mean, the administration, if you look at administration to administration, Obama uh, was far under Biden. Trump, for sure, was far under Biden. Biden blows it out of the water because what, what do they do? They eradicated all of these things that made sense to you and me and to all of your listeners. All this administration has to do is to give a crap about what is going on and do their job. Um, and I think the speaker has been very clear about that. They have, the, they have the power right now to fix this problem. Let's, let's get to the government shutdown. I mean, to me, that's, the, that's something the Republicans can hold over the Democrats' head to get a better deal on border security. Is that something that, that the Congress, I doubt the Senate is, but the Republicans in the House, how far are they willing to go in not funding the government to get a better deal on the border? Well, I, 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 I hope that we look. I think the American people are with us on the border. They see it. We've seen the numbers because of the things that we've done to go down there and highlight it. Um, I'm ready for a border fight. And um, I think t- to me, it's do you fund, do you want to keep the government open or do you want to keep the border open? And one of the core functions of what this government should do, what any federal government should do, is to secure that southern border, secure that northern border, and it's not being done. Uh, and it's not being treated seriously. Yesterday, the question was asked of Secretary Mario Chris on the, on the radio. If you were given additional funding, but the caveat was that you could only use it to enforce the law, deport people who shouldn't be here, um, provide fencing for the, the border, would you do it? He said no. I mean, th- this is the guy that is running the Department of Homeland Security. It's, it's insane 
uh, that, that he's even allowed to be in that position with that type of answer. Russell, the, the concern I have with Ukraine, and, 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 you know, I understand the situation that a politician finds themselves in. If there's a deal to be made that includes advancing, securing the border, and you give up a little in, in, in the funding of Ukraine, it's not that we don't care about Ukraine. It's not that we're Putin sympathizers. I just don't think the majority of Americans have any clarity in what the mission is. What are we, what is the objective? If we're, if we're investing American taxpayer dollars in Ukraine, what do we hope to achieve? Isn't that fair criticism? It's a completely fair criticism, and it's one that I have. Ken, I mean, you're a, you're a Jeffersonian at heart, as, as, I, as I am too. You know, there is a balance of power for a reason. There, is a, there are checks and balances for a reason. One of the things lacking in this Ukraine uh, thing that we have got going on now is the, the limited ability of Congress to know what's going on, which means the American people don't know what's going on. There's no strategic objective. We don't have any true accounting of the money or where it's gone. And when we've asked the questions – about what is truly going on in Ukraine, we basically get from the administration what we could find on CNN or Fox News. And so if, if we're going to be engaged in a space around the world, I think the American people deserve some answers about what is going on, how is our money being spent. Certainly no one wants Russia to invade another country. No one, no one at, at their heart thinks that that is a good thing. But should American capital and treasure be spent when we don't know what is going toward and we don't know what victory looks like. Last question, Congressman. There, there seems to be uh, a different mindset amongst Republican leadership in the House and Republican leadership in the Senate. What are those communications like? we got a new speaker. we still got some old dogs running the Senate on the, on the Republican side. Uh, as we head off into 2024, does it appear that Speaker Johnson is going to be better at convincing the leadership in the Republican Party uh, in the Senate that, that their agenda is representative of their, of their constituents a little more so than the, than the Senate? Well, I think what they're finding with Speaker Johnson, you know, certainly is a, is a true conservative. And I, I think you know, he's had some learning curves like anybody else inheriting that job midstream would find. Um, you know, the Senate, you know, the Senate, the Senate leadership, I would say, has always been a little bit, you know, softer than the base wants them to be. I think Speaker Johnson's natural inclination is to be uh, a base conservative, a true conservative. And so, you know, there's going to be some skirmishes. Um, I think it's gotten better, but, um, you know, time time will tell. I certainly want to give the Speaker all the the, the lead that he needs because we need, we, we need him to succeed. I mean, we win if he is successful uh, in articulating where the American people are, um, but – Time will tell on that. Um, time will tell on how effective he is at convincing the Senate counterpart. So far, though, uh, on some things, he has been successful um, in, in pulling them along uh, because we need Senate Republicans to be with us. If they're not, then it makes our job incredibly more difficult because House Republicans at that point are on an island by themselves with a Democratic White House Senate and, and then, quite frankly, complete control with the Senate if, if the Republicans are going along with Chuck Schumer. Well explained. Congressman, thank you for your time. We'll talk um, not this coming Friday, FRID way, but the following Friday as we resume our every other week visit from Congressman Russell Fry. Thank you, sir, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, my friend. We'll take a break. We'll be back. Got two stand-up city council members uh, in our in our studio, and we'll kind of hash out some of the agreements and disagreements we have about local issues. Back in a few.
You know, we spend the lion's share of our time talking about national politics, and Rev and I will agree, or I think Rev will agree with me, um, love him, hate him. <laughs> when Donald Trump showed up, we became uh, a more popular uh, a more popular show. <laughs> no doubt. It's kind of interesting, the Trump phenomenon in this particular business. I, I would argue, I mean, what does Trump win our audience by? Is it 70-30? Is it 65-35? Is it 80-20? Hmm. It, I mean, it might be higher than well, 70. I mean, it, it might Some be. Days. I mean, I don't have any idea. Yeah, but, sure. But, but even the ones that are adamantly opposed to Trump find themselves not obsessed, but listening to conservative talk radio, I guess, to make you angry. I don't have it. Same reason I watch MSNBC, I guess, to see what the other side <laughs> thinks and why they believe what they believe. Obviously, I don't profess to have a monopoly on what needs to be done, what should be done. Anyway, um, the Biden-Trump election will dominate discourse this uh, this year. No question about it. I still feel, and have always felt this way, that local politics are genuinely where the, where the rubber hits the road. Those are the people that make decisions that directly impact and affect your life in a real way. So some of the presidential politics is a little bit abstract and squishy and Supreme Court justices. I mean, that's fundamental to the country, but I don't know how many of us genuinely are affected by whether the court is conservative or liberal, we do and are affected by our local um, government officials. And I mean, I was proud to serve on county council in Florence. I've said this before. I went off to Columbia and got a fancy schmancy office and a purple robe and presided over the Senate. But the influence I had at the local level far exceeded uh, what I could or could not do at the, uh, at the state level. And I offered on Tuesday when we got back, I uh, kind of checked on Facebook and Twitter and some of the social media sites. And there was a big story out there about the city of Florence and what they had done in relation to not being opt-out program. And I said, hey, I'm not going to put anything on Facebook or Twitter, and I'm not going to comment much about it until I allow, you know, some of these people who make these decisions to have an opportunity to explain themselves. And I, you know, gave a chance for anybody on city council to come on the airways and kind of not defend, but explain what they did, why they did it, and, um, and how it affects their constituency. And two stand-up guys, I said it before, I'll say it again, Brian Braddock and Shaquez McCall, one's a Republican, one's a Democrat. That's kind of odd. It's obvious you guys aren't in Washington or you wouldn't be in the same room uh, together. But, but they've agreed to come on. Brian, you initiated uh, some of this conversation. You wanted to come on and, and kind of walk us through how we got to here. And I'll let you and Shaquez just kind of um, offer commentary on, on, on how we got here and why you two are sitting in the studio. Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity. You know, a lot of this uh, on my side has been hashed out on social media. Um, but you got you to gotta know where things were. And, you know, one thing I want to say is we have our meeting the first, uh, second Monday of every month, you know. And I would look, and you can go on YouTube and look at it. I think people need to go on and they, they do need to be informed. But at the time, we were looking at a $450 million bond referendum. Um, for much needed. I don't think anyone's going to disagree about the work that needs to be done. They may disagree with the price and things like that, but um, we, we have to do it. We're growing. Well, um, we got some infrastructure we got to replace and we got um, some new we got to put in. So we knew over the next five years that there was going to be a significant in increase in the price um, that people were going to pay for water. I mean, it's, it's just something we had to do. And, um, so, and with that, um, some backdrop, there had been a situation last winter where a lady, a teacher in Timminsville that was on Florence City Water, I don't know if y'all recall, she was like in her 80s or 90s, 
came to find out she had not had water for like two months and um and there was no way for us to address that situation there was no precedent there was no fund there was no way for us to help her i think the city manager ended up giving her two months uh for free or something like that but so given this increase in our it actually came out of our finance committee meeting which uh, councilman mccall chairs we looked at a roundup program they have one in lake city they have them in other municipalities and um because we wanted for veterans for seniors um, for those that are disabled those with children under five you know our most vulnerable knowing that a an increase could um, impact them we wanted a vehicle that we could we could help them with yeah and um, when we looked at these uh when looked at these programs the the most successful ones were opt-out programs and then the city staff said in terms of the facilitating of the program that was the easiest one to facilitate um at the time my headspace i'm thinking about a 450 million dollar bond i'm thinking about the impacts i'm thinking about you know situations um like that we just had and and so i was definitely in favor of the program and the other council members wanted to go with the uh, opt-out and you know I was okay with that, just given all the circumstances. Now, you know, after seeing the the post and getting the feedback, <laughs> you know, feedback. Get, getting beat up a little bit, you know, um, and really reflecting. You know, first, when you're in politics, you want to defend. You know, you you get yelled at. You know, I liken it to um, I'm never going to pick up a snake and get bit because I'm not stupid, but we've all stepped on a, a yellow jacket nest, right? And we know how that goes. You get attacked from everywhere. You start running. You know, yelling 50 yards down the road, you know, you got one sock on and you're in your Duluth underwear wondering what the heck happened. Well, that's what happened to me on social media. I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> but it wasn't uh, Yellow Jackets. It was uh, Hemmingsons. I call them Hemmingsons. <laughs> I, 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 saw, I saw some of the boat. Okay, Shaquez, I want to get to you. because I think this is an interesting example of the two parties and their contrast. I mean, it doesn't make people bad people if they believe in limited government. It doesn't make people bad people if they believe in, in government playing a larger role. I mean, that's the fundamental debate that we had in Jeffersonian and Hamiltonian days. I mean, it still exists. And, and I think Brian, being a Republican, has to understand, you know, where the constituencies lie. You, being a Democrat, have a different set of constituents. But you, too, have tried to resolve and work through this matter in a way that I wish other politicians could. Yeah, and 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 I don't want Brian to take a much of the blame here. I would say I'm I'm probably the fire starter. Uh, but what I always do is, whatever decision that even if it's if it's my proposal or anybody's proposal, the first person I call is Brian. I want to know what's that conservative perspective I'm missing. Um, and kind of backing up a little bit, uh, you know, this is going to be the largest investment Florence has ever made. Uh, the 450 million dollar bond is going to be the largest by far, probably doubled what was ever done. Um, I guess Jay Jordan's name is coming is coming next. And I was talking to Jay Jordan. He says economic development is not cheap. Uh, Envision is coming. Uh, it's going to change the landscape of the PD area. Um, and with that, uh, and I, I was explaining the story to I guess Mike Rickenbach yesterday. As a matter of fact, um, you know the city of Florence can only pump ten million gallons a day, uh, but you got a plant coming here that's about to take up fifteen percent of all our capacity. So the there's no other alternative but to expand the system we have, right? So the $450 million was needed. Um, but it didn't, I guess just I have a, a big heart. Brian also has a big heart. I think everyone knows that. Uh, so we, it was the, the question was next. Uh, we did it through the finance committee. The question was next. Again, what uh, can we do, you know, to help 
help the burden. Um, and again, as Brian said, uh, I think this was brought up maybe in July, right? Uh, we allowed the city to study the issue. And just from a best practice standpoint, uh, they offered and, they, you know, they actually uh, recommended that we do the opt out instead of the opt in. Um, and, and I and at the time I was like, oh, OK, you know, uh, you know, I, I would at first I was thinking more of an opt in program. Um, but the successful ones were the opt out ones. Um, I think Lake City has an opt out one. Um I know Mount Pleasant, um, Spartanburg, and a, a, a lot more municipalities have those roundup programs as well. And it's not just South Carolina; it's across the country where people have round utilities have roundup programs. Um, so again, I, I went to Brian. I was like, Brian, man, I, I, hopefully, I don't think we're gonna get beat up on this, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and he was he was honest with me, and I, and I think you know he. The biggest thing he said, well, and, and I think this is important. I think what people need to understand is this too: is this was passed in October. All right. So if we was trying to be sneaky about it, you know, we would have just passed in October. And in fact, you know, most people probably would not even notice. Right. But the goal and kind of the compromise in a sense was the fact that we're going to give people six months notice. We're going to market it. So we're here today to, to market it. Um, we posted it online. I think they did many news press uh, news or press releases on it. Um, I've been on uh, the news twice uh, in September and October about it. Um, and they're trying to do a mass marketing campaign to people to let people know you can opt out and it doesn't supposed to take effect until May. Um, but you know, we've had a lot of some backlash from it and uh, we're kind of reconsidering some things now. I'm talking to Brian now to see how can we, uh, do it to where people don't feel slighted. You know, so, and and mm-hmm. Brian, that was the concern that a lot that I heard a lot. And I read some of the comments is, it's not that, hey, I, I know there are people that need help, and I'm willing to help, but let me make that decision. I mean, that's the mind of a conservative. Is that fair? It is, and and I agree with that. I, I posted, uh, someone asked me, I, I posted that I made the wrong vote, and someone said, well, you know, Brian. And I, and I want to say this. I think any political person who says I made a mistake gains favor with the voting public. Consultants can say what they want. I think I think people who vote for other people genuinely appreciate when that person says i may have got this wrong yeah and and let me say there's no pre-planning for that you do, you don't do it and vote wrong so that you can say i voted wrong <laughs> sure you don't. it's not worth the pain that ain't a lot of fun. <laughs> no it's not a lot of fun at all but um but for my um, base for conservatives I, I agree i agree that it should uh it should have been an opt-in program uh someone said you know brian did you fold under the pressure i said no i uh I thought about it. I listened to people. You know, I put my pride aside. The first, uh, the first reaction is to defend. You know, and that's what I wanted to to do to defend my decision. But you know, after thinking about it, and and when people get loud and, and they yell, um, you still got to listen. You know, um, you you can get uh, offended or whatnot, but this is what we signed up for. And um, so it, it was from a conservative, and I am one. They do need the choice, just like I voted for the choice to vote for the alcohol re- um, referendum. This is the same thing. I was just, I was thinking with my heart. I was trying to mitigate, uh, mitigate the the issues of this increase, and and uh, I try to work well with uh, with my council. Well, you're I, not king. You're not dictator. Shaquez yeah. is not king or dictator. You got to right. work with other people, and and I try to be respectful about. I mean, I disagreed with the initial decision. I made that. Uh, parent, but, but I mean, I appreciate you guys coming on. I will say this, and I want to get you to come back and let's have a, an extended conversation. You inherited a mess with water. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you guys were not responsible for 
the, the, the necessary repairs to critical infrastructure that was neglected for a long period of time. Exactly. And we're going to have to play catch up. Yeah. I mean, I don't like it. You don't like it. I'm glad I'm not on city council having to deal with that monumental problem because we're not talking about libraries and museums where people can beat up and say, fundamentally, that's not I mean, the, the role of government is to provide utilities and previous. I want to be careful here. Previous um, councils chose to do other things than maintain critical infrastructure. And you guys are going to have to make some real hard and difficult decisions, Shaquiz, yeah. in regards to water. Yeah, I, and it's, it's unfortunate. I, I think, uh, you know, the quality ward, I see the Facebook post all the time. Um, and, and I think I, I think Brian posted a post on Facebook uh, maybe last year uh, that said, hey, listen, and this was before the we even brought up the $450 million bond. Hey, listen, you know, if you if you want this, it's going to cost, right? Um, and a vision came, and it kind of forced us to do it anyway. But uh, at this point, I think it's a necessary uh, thing. I think it's going to improve both the quality and the capacity, and um, we should be good from there. And I appreciate both of you. you got about 15, 20 seconds, Brian. Well, I just want to say the other thing, the city of Florence has taken over the Timmonsville Water Department and other local municipality water departments that were also um, neglected. And so – it's taking time to do that and to provide a good quality product. Well, That's I appreciate you guys candidly addressing the current issue and the issue yet to come. We'll be back in just a few moments. So this is how the progression goes. You got local government nearest the people, then you got state government near the people, and then you've got that 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 um that unknown animal called the federal government that nobody can really figure out. So we started <laughs> we with know. Russell, right. our, our, our congressman, talking about the federal government, and he said a lot of things, and he sent me a text a second ago um, talking about the subjects we covered. And, um, you know, I didn't want to put it. But Bar- Barry said, Willie shut the government down in the name of securing the border. Eh, that's unfair. I mean, I, I, I don't want to go down that road. I think Russell's expressed his commitment to securing the border um, it, it kind of made an interesting point to me, Ref, when he said, because I'm opposed to any additional Ukrainian funding. I'm, I mean, I'm totally opposed to it because I don't think we have any clarity on what objective is. I mean, I don't think we, we're sending taxpayer dollars to do what? I mean, to do what? What is the end game in Ukraine? Um, but Russell said, if I can get a bill that secures the border, I'm willing to give up a little uh, funding for Ukraine, whether we know exactly where it's going or not. And that's the art of compromise. That's playing the game of, of American politics. Now we've got um, Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, Representative Philip Lowe, in our studio here. And um, and I want to ask you guys this, because I think this is interesting, and our listeners would be curious about this. If the city has a problem with its water system, it's not your responsibility, but how involved does Representative Lowe and Senator Rickenbaugh need to be in helping the city navigate, negotiate? Um, I mean, I know at times you guys reach up to Washington, you know, or deal with Washington, some of these economic development issues and whatnot. Uh, Representative Law, I'll start with you. Um, you know their dilemma, and and I, I told you off the air. I mean, I had a certain friend of ours who told me 15 years ago they're neglecting the repairing of critical infrastructure, and they're going to have to borrow a bunch of money one of these days. Um, what what is what is the delegation's responsibility to municipal government helping them work some of these problems? There certainly is no responsibility. The question is. Can we get some project money that would help? And and there's, uh, depending on how budgets go, non-recurring revenue, which is one-time money, is is available for a variety of things. It might be to build a new uh, university building or something, and and we may take those projects around the state for different activities. If we feel like that's the most important thing, 
for Florence, we can request that. Doesn't mean we get it, but we've got to fight through everybody else's requests for their projects and, and see if you can bring some money home. We can also fund the rural infrastructure type funds. Um, a lot of money came from the government to help with this really in the last couple of years that, you know, that they've got their share of that money. I think 10 million bucks of, of that would, but still that seems to be a drop in the bucket compared to their needs. Mike, because their constituents are your constituents. I mean, the people that vote for city and county council members, they also vote for house members and, um, and senators. Yeah, I think a big responsibility we bear at state government is to be a conduit of information. Um, as a fan of limited government, I share the frustration a lot of our constituents have where they don't know where to turn when they've got frustrations and concerns. So um, I'll, I'll return every phone call and every email that I send, and I'll have people reach out. Um, on one end of the spectrum, Ken, they want to ask me what can we can do to, to secure the southern border and help with a friend's visa, a federal issue. On the other end of the board, on the spectrum, they'll ask about school board issues or local municipality issues. So being able to say, let me find your U.S. congressman. Let me find your school board member. Let me find your city councilman, city councilwoman. That's part of our responsibility to help navigate just the murky waters of government. But I think one thing that we can do is, is ask for transparency. I have, have had people reach out to me about this water issue to say, like, about the opt-in, opt-out. And they say, it's, it's only 99 cents, but you know what? It's my 99 cents. And I, I think there's real merit to the, the concept of, of why we need limited government, small government, because government, and I've seen it in a year and a half I've been in the state Senate, government at all levels can begin to think it's our money and maybe we'll let you have some of it. But it isn't our money. The budget isn't our money. The tax dollars are the taxpayers. So when people say, I don't want to do the opt-out program, it's because the government shouldn't say, I'm going to hold your money unless you ask for it back. It's if the government wants to go ahead and use that money, they can ask you for it. And if you want to opt in, great. But at the end of the day, the ability to have transparency and say to accountability to government to at all levels, including at the, the Rural Infrastructure Authority, as we talked about before we got on air there, when the, the city and each one of the towns in Florence County ask for those dollars, we can advocate on behalf of these municipalities, but ultimately the state level and the federal level need to work together to make sure that the local towns are good stewards of what they're asking for. And, Philip, conceptually on the city issue, I don't think any of us are opposed to you rounding up your water bill to help those who are less fortunate if you choose to it was government involuntarily signing you up to do something you've not given consent to yeah it's, it's socialism i mean but that's the root problem that we have at our local government level there the city has six democrats out of the seven total folks we have one republican on there and it's hard to fight that kind of a current even as you as you're one republican you might stand up for a value here or there but you kind of got to go along to get along. To, so you might get something in your area. So he's under a, a stressful, you know, Braddock's under a stressful situation. But we've got to find a way to go to a nonpartisan government, or we've got to stop this. This We've got, what, four different officials on the city council that are voted uh, by the whole citywide election rather than a single-member district. We've got to change that. Or How do we do that, Philip? I mean, you, you and I have had a lot of conversations off the air. Let's have one on the air. You and I believe that Democrats are disproportionately represented on city council. I mean, yeah. there's no denying that. I mean, when you look at our delegation, it's largely Republican. 
Um, Trump won the county, not by a large share, but by a certain percentage. We need more. I mean, if we look at equitable representation of political ideology at the city level, there needs to be more Republicans. How do we accomplish that? How how legal is it to try and advance a, I don't know, a change of legislation that helps Republicans get elected to local government? I think the you, you go to, uh, if you know you're in the county, but you're close to the city limits, then you go to your HOA association meetings. You, you go and talk about, hey, we're not getting a voice in the city. Why don't we all consider annexing you know, our subdivision? That's what it's going to take. We have the population to have Republican control of the city. We just choose to stay in the county for no known reason. There's no advantage for being in the county. You're not shooting weapons in the suburbs, you know, out in your backyard to, for target practice. It's not like you're raising 200 hound dogs and you've got to be in the county to get this done in your life. We've simply decided we don't want to be in the city for some reason, and it doesn't make sense. We, we have to annex. And, and, Mike, I've read and tried to study some of this. Some of this goes back to my time on council. When the county sold the city the water system, it didn't exclude county residents from getting service from the city. So in essence, to Phillip's point, we have many county residents outside of the city limits being charged a premium to access water from the city department. You could honestly argue in Boston Tea Party fashion that it's taxation without representation because the city controls the water and the rate you pay, but you have no influence over who the elected officials in the city are. Yeah, and it's such a good point. And, and I love Philip's description of, of how we could change the, the process and the makeup council. But I always, I try to encourage constituents when we talk, be very careful that you don't use the words Republican and conservative synonymously. They're not the same thing. And everyone's allowed to live out their own politics. But there are many Republicans who became Republicans because it was expedient. And because the winds blew in their demog- in their district and they needed to become Republicans. I've seen it at the, the state level and at the federal level, but even locally to a degree. Um, limited government and fiscal conservatism is different necessarily than being a Republican. So I think when we talk have about what could make this better, what could make the transparency and the accountability better, we have to not just look for Republicans. We have to look for fiscal conservatives who believe in limited government, who believe that it isn't the government's money to decide what we're going to do with it. We are stewards of the taxpayers' money. They pay the taxes. So it's the same conversation when we talk about do we forgive tuition. Well, it's not our right to forgive tuition because it's using the taxpayers' dollars to forgive that tuition. We Government has to stop looking at policy from the perspective of it's our money. It's not ours. It's the taxpayers. Philip, let's go back to this because we're talking about some of their issues at water with the city is the um the envision project uh the 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 electric battery battery manufacturer that will create about i mean somewhat excess of 1500 jobs maybe more than that nearly a billion dollar or north of a billion dollar investment i don't want to pat you on the back in front of the public or blow smoke your way um but you were very instrumental in that uh you felt we needed to make a, a big commitment to economic development and secure some sites and and, and get the infrastructure on the table that is necessary to acquire um, some of those. Take us in the room, if you don't mind, uh, with, with with the meetings you have with DOT or the city. I mean, when you bring this big job creator, there's going to be a, a bigger demand for water. There's going to be access or egress and ingress issues. Who who hashes out all of that? Who's in the room 
when, not when the deal's made. I understand progress and economic development. I, I get that. But, but obviously, the ancillary issues that come along, state government has to play a role in that. Well, it's the infrastructure needs that are there. It might just be an off-ramp of, or an on-ramp, like, you know, Bucky's got a, an off-ramp. It's meaningful for them. It was a requirement by them. They said, we're not going to come unless you can get us that. Those kind of things get pushed on you. And because it's expensive if you're developing something to please the infrastructure needs because you're going to stress the roads out around you. It's going to cost money to widen the road or to to get a, an intersection improved to a five-lane intersection. That stuff costs millions of dollars to get done. We, it's not me, our delegation, Mike included, Jay included, all of them, every, all nine of us, fought hard to get the $200 million that it took for Envision. And it wasn't as much on-site money that was going to them. It's all the improvements you've got to do around that. That's not necessarily their fault. It may already be a crowded road or a crowded intersection, but they're going to make it more crowded. So DOT would say, if you're bringing all these cars here, you've got to help solve the problem. So yeah, two hundred million was like I think we got thirteen million for economic development for other sites, and and we had to get more money for Mallard, which was the second project out there, uh, to to make it work. And you're competing with states that are doing it, and they'll steal it or or get that industry to go to them if you're not going to help with that. So I think the taxpayer, because it is. Taxpayer money, and I thank the delegation because we all did that together. And, and Mike, it's not the government's role to <laughs> subsidize the manufacturing of electric cars or batteries, but it is the government's role, to Phillip's point, to make sure there's adequate water and, and stormwater drainage and, and, and egress and ingress, DOT and all these other issues. I mean, that, that's fundamentally. I mean, you and I are conservative. Phillip's conservative. But I think we can all agree that is taxpayer dollars well spent. Yeah, I agree. That goes back to the conversation of what's the core function of, of a true limited government society that we all strive, those of us in this room at least strive to live in. Not everybody in this country, but those of us in this room. And, you know, the armed forces, our public safety, our utilities, it would be unreasonable and uncomprehensible to expect individuals to go buy a police force or to fund a police force or to fund their water or to fund their power. So fund their gas. So those are the, the core functions of limited government. And if we can create 1600 jobs that will be in Florence County, not including the families that are supported, not including the other businesses that will then support those families that are here. It's a win-win for Florence County. Well said, we'll take our first break of this hour. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. You know, I was thinking about, I mean, th this is a feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. It's a local radio show, but we have established relationships with people that have agreed to keep the community informed. And, and I just want to thank not just Russell Fry and not just Brian Braddock and Shaquez McCall, but, but you know, Mike and, and Philip are here in the studio with us as they are about every, every Friday. And I want to say thank you. And I mean that sincerely. You engage the audience where they are. Uh, most people don't ride up to the state house and see you in your in your office. So both of you, along with Jay, have agreed week after week to uh, on the fly. And uh, we don't screen calls, do we, Rev? I mean, you know, it, it come as you may. And um, it, but I want to personally thank you as we head into a new year for agreeing to to come on this uh, this radio show and meet your voters, our listeners, where they are. Our thank pleasure. You. Yeah, thank you very much. Let's go to the phone. We have Bob in Florence. You are on the air with the delegation. Good morning. How are y'all? Good hey, morning. Bob. Hey, I want to ask a question. It's totally different from what y'all are talking about. 
But Santia, it's about electricity. Santia Electric's got this in peak hours, and it's $12 a kilowatt. And how are they getting away with that? Imagine the elderly people that live around here trying to set their time to cut the stuff here off, not use this, use that. That To me, that's that's just robbing the blind there. So, thank, thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. I mean, we've talked about energy, affordable, dependable energy, economic development. I mean, that's a big issue. I saw something on Facebook or Twitter yesterday about Duke Energy sending out an alert, you know, warning people uh, you could in, you could interpret the alert to mean they were concerned about the availability or reliability. I think Duke cleaned some of that up and said that was more of an energy saving. But, uh, but Mike, I'll start with you. Um, Santee predates your time in the Senate, predates Phillips' time in the House, but it's conundrum. I mean, it, it really and truly is. It was not well managed. Um, there was big debates on what to do with Santee. The bigger question is, as South Carolina grows, can we meet our energy needs? Yeah, it's a question that I, I don't have the answer to right now. I, I, I'm getting more familiar with the state's public service commission, the PSC, and I'd, I'd have to defer an answer until I learned better about what the PSC's role was, what's the plan look like, what's the, the strategy look like to address our growth in our state. But, but, but Philip, I mean, you've been there a while. You've seen some of the goods and bads of Santee. I mean, there was a big debate about what to do, whether to sell it. Is it solvent? Is it not solvent? I mean, I've maintained it's worth salvaging. I mean, that's always been the, the mindset that I've had. I'm a limited government guy, but, but I do believe that in order for us to meet our energy needs, Santee's going to have to be a part of that. You know, they, they sold the, the concept of Santee Cooper to me that the state-owned utility could provide cheaper electricity and we would therefore attract, we could, we could use that to attract industry to our state. That's why they said, don't sell Santee Cooper. Let's hold it. Let's use it to our advantage when it comes. But, you know, I mean, it, why should the state own anything like that? That's kind of my feelings about it. But the peak, the peak hour thing is just trying to shift you from the peak hour usage to an hour that they have enough electricity. If everybody goes and washes their clothes at peak hour, then we may have brownouts. We may have problems. And by that Santee Cooper fiasco with, with Scanna and, and, the, and the whole nuclear fiasco we had, that was going to be really a 50-year solution to our uh, our problems of growth in electricity and all those needs. So where we're at now, we've got to find something new. And part of those ways are shifting people from peak hours. But I promise you, peak hours is always early and late and, you know, early in the morning, late in the afternoon. Uh, and solar's not going to solve that. That's not the time it's helping. Philip, everything I read, and you would know better than I, everything I read leads me to believe that nuclear is going to have to be a part of this. I mean, I mean the, the Obama administration made it almost impossible to permit a nuclear, however large or small that may be. Some of these smaller nuclear generating plants seem to be um, where Republicans land, but you've got to have a Republican administration that is a little less red tapey and allowing some of the permitted constructing. Well, look at, let's say, Russia and, and what they were doing with natural gas and Ukraine and, and the threat that they gave to Europe. And it was like, don't mess with me. I'll turn your gas off. Well, that scared the death out of the Germans. So they were very reliable on it. But who was laughing? The French, because they had nuclear power. Just about all of their power came from it. So, you know, if, if you're not independent with your energy, you're foolish. 
And 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 you guys have to be a part, Mike and and Philip and and the Santee Cooper crowd and the the Duke Energy crowd and and all. We're, we're going to have to be visionary. We are. I mean, I was reading something this morning about um, the Electoral College and how many. I mean, it, it, it's mind blowing, and I mean this sincerely. It's mind blowing what the predictions are for people leaving Illinois, New York, and California coming to the uh, to the. I guess the. The HOA I, near you? Well, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it's the South. I mean, it, there's a mass migration down South, but Arizona is another state. Uh, Montana, Utah, uh, so, some of these less regulated states, some of these Republican states. Um, it's going to end up being Philip and Mike, and this will be encouraging to Republicans, in the 2032 presidential election, and I want to spend some time on this next week, the Republican can win the states that Trump won, Georgia and Arizona, and win the presidency. Forget Wisconsin. Forget Michigan. Forget Pennsylvania. I mean, we, we, we always, I mean, the Republicans are always nervous about what happens in, in the, you always feel like you're climbing uphill. I mean, you do it in all three of those states. But if this shift continues as projected, um, you're going to see Illinois with two less votes. New York, two less. California could be three less votes. And the red states picking up just enormous numbers of population. I mean, just imagine a Republican going uh, into a general election, only having to win the states that Trump won, Georgia and Arizona. I like our odds there. I mean, I really and truly do. And I want to spend some time next week. Remind me, Ref, because I'll forget about it. But I want to I go into detail and specificity about that. We got a call. Jim and Florence, good morning. You are on with the delegation. Hey, good morning, uh, Ken. It'd be interesting to see how many um, votes California would lose if they didn't count uh, illegal aliens. Um, I think it's somewhere around five or six. Um, but, Mike, you were on the Family and Veterans Services Committee. Is that correct? Correct. Can you kind of give us a rundown of how this week's committee hearing went on the uh, – and please clean it up for me – but the bill to um, protect parents uh, right to their children, certain medical information um, once they reach the age of 12. And I, it kind of sounds silly, um, but it's already happening here with Atrium Health uh, up in the Charlotte area. They're based out of North Carolina, but they do operate in South Carolina where they are denying access, um, medical access to their parents um, for their children once they hit the age of 12. So if you don't mind giving us uh, a rundown of what happened real quick and where you think that bill uh, ends up and if it comes out of subcommittee. Thank you. Yeah, great question, Jim. Uh, so the full committee didn't meet. Uh, that was a subcommittee, and we go back into session Tuesday. Um, so we're to be briefed on it. Uh, the rest of the those members of us, myself included, on the committee who are not in the sub, uh, will be briefed on it next week. So I couldn't give you any insight uh, other than what you'd read in the paper, paper there uh, until we go back in next week. As to what the, the chances are of it passing, really hard to tell until we're back in session next week. But, but Mike, we're talking about conservatives and Republicans being two different things. Jim's asking the question, framed off uh, a bit I did earlier. Mike DeWine, Republican governor of Ohio, I mean, we can question his conservative bona fides all we'd like, but he vetoed a piece of legislation called the, I mean, I've got it here, the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act. The General Assembly in Ohio passed a bill saying that a parent can't allow gender mutilation surgery or sex-altering surgery on a minor child. 
Um, certainly the health care provider can't, but the parent can't do that. I mean, they're basically arguing that's child abuse, and somebody's got to stand in the gap and protect the kid. DeWine vetoes the bill because he's a woke uh, Republican. We believe the General Assembly. Where, where do the two of you stand? Uh, I, I, Josh, I know we're, we're just give me give me a couple of minutes here. I want to get these two guys on. In other words, is general mutilation of a minor child, this is such a layup for a conservative Republican, uh, is gender mutilation, I'm going to show how much I appreciate you guys coming on the show. You ready? Is gender mutilation of a minor child child abuse? Yes, it is okay. child abuse. <laughs> That's yeah. a hard one for you to answer. <laughs> That's Phillip? a quick one. They ought to go to jail for doing <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, yeah. Even Clinton wouldn't do that, right? Yeah. See, see, Rev, that, that's an old trick. That's how you, that's how you keep them coming. I know. You know what I mean? That's yeah, that, was, that was smooth. It would play up yeah. like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure we'll get off course here before long. Uh, we went to a, a meeting the other day, and I saw there was a bill in the House that was dealing with that. So hopefully that'll, since it was listed as an important bill, I, I think we'll move that along. Okay, let, let, we, we may try to periodically update the process of that bill. But in Ohio, the the... The woke Republican governor um, disagreed with the conservative uh, Republican General Assembly. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. 843-661-0937. Got a call on the phone. Before we go there, I want to give these guys a chance. We're heading into 2024. Session starts Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, you guys will be back in session. Um, this is the second year of this session. This is a new session, right? Uh, right. Uh, th- this would be the back half of this um of this session, well, it's weird. I mean, they're two-year sessions, so you guys will take up bills that didn't progress in in the last year, last calendar year. Um, I mean, I guess running for re-election would be the first question I'd pose to both of you if we had, as we head into 2024, is Lowe or Rickenbach hanging it up and going home? Go ahead, Mike. Tell them about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sharice uh, and I, we announced two days ago that we are running for, for re-election here. We've... Uh, been loving the opportunity to serve District 31 and, and Florence and the PD. We're grateful. We appreciate the prayers, the encouragement, the support, and um, we've checked off everything we've committed to on our contract with the PD. And I just ask voters to continue to to support us, um, hold us accountable, ask us questions. I appreciate people like Jim Breeze, people who call in, who will research, who will ask questions about particular bills. Hold us accountable. If we don't do the job that we say we're going to do, call us out on it. But as long as um, we continue to do the job and you want us there, we'd ask for your vote and I look forward to running. Philip? Well, I consulted my pastor, my family, all my friends, people up in Columbia. And every one of them said, Philip, please don't. <laughs> but, but you're going to do what they said don't do i'm way too hard-headed for that you know <laughs> so yeah i'm going to run again i appreciate you asking i appreciate this show because it's a it's a place where ideas come together and, and i hope people understand me they, they know me well enough now if they want me back or not every two years i've got that question comes up march 30th the final day people can sign up this isn't my seat this is your seat so somebody wants to come come on and get some um, but I will do the best job I can if y'all allow me to serve again. Both of you have. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington, you are on with the delegation. Uh, I don't want to. Ch- uh, I wish uh, all of you, all, all of you guys well, and especially uh, uh, Senator Rickenbaugh. I, I I wish I could vote for him, but I can't. So uh, that that's the situation there. I don't want to uh, uh, belittle or put on the back burner the 
catastrophic uh, effects of uh, gender and child mutilation. But uh, back to the things that are absolutely essential, y'all were talking about water and power. And those are essential for maintaining uh, our our standard of living, uh, even uh, maintaining order. And right now, a lot of people are trying to, it seems like there's a, a mass effect of trying to create hysteria among people and trying to create fear. And I I would hope that people will try to maintain calm in these uh, things because I, there's going to be one panicking thing after another. Some of them are more real and uh, immediate than others coming out of Washington and uh, coming out of uh, state capitals everywhere. But the the main thing is I was I'm concerned about building uh, turbines for peak power because those turbines they're not quite as uh, politically demanding as trying to get a nuclear plant built. But we need to start on the nuclear. But you need those uh, extra peak power turbines because. Uh, even the nuclear plant needs them because uh, uh, the response time on a nuclear plant as far as uh, creating increased uh, energy is uh, somewhat a lot slower than uh, those turbines that can fire up like those uh, plants over in Hartsville. And they're absolutely essential that they keep the requisite number to uh, accommodate uh, cold snaps and uh, – heat waves. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, let's go all the way to the top of the food chain. The president of the United States appoints an EPA director. The next Democrat president will be forced by his, um, you know, special interest to appoint a very radical EPA. I mean, that that's where we had, that, that's the clear choice we have. Donald Trump, if he's president of the United States, is not going to appoint a, a radical to run the EPA. It's going to be pro-business, deregulate-minded. Um, Philip nor Mike have the authority to choose what regulations decide who builds what, where, when, and how. But but you've got to be prepared, Philip, for a radicalized EPA or a more business-friendly EPA. And I saw both of you nodding your heads. Mike nailed it. I mean, we'll get a lot of things wrong, but water and energy are essential to the vibrancy of our country and economy. And no doubt, I mean, your energy plan, like I said earlier, you've got to be independent. And you need to be somewhat diversified. That doesn't mean you need the craziest things that, that don't make a lot of sense, that don't, don't make financial sense. But you've got to have the peak power covered by things that aren't solar. You know, you've got to have, uh, I don't think you necessarily have to have coal, but you probably have to have gas. You have to have something you can immediately, like you said, turn on, get going, get turbines going and, and manage that peak power because that's where your problems are going to occur is, is when everybody's using electricity in those cold days and hot days and that peak time is going to catch you. And with our growth, we've, we've got to keep, we've got to make sure that government's not getting in the way of creating power. Mike. Well, first of all, I want to thank Mike for calling. Uh, his points are so salient and, and well-made. Uh, and I guess I wanted to echo something he said, because I think it's vitally important. We don't skip over it. Whether you listen to Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or NPR, um, within the entertainment industry of media, fear is a good thing. Fear creates ratings. Fear creates people listening. And 
there's nothing wrong with being engaged and being concerned. And we all need workers. Working is important. That's we all business owners in here. And you make a business, you build a business by managing a P&L and a balance sheet and hiring people and going to work every day. But Mike's point about fear, um, I'm encouraging us all not to get caught up in fear. Uh, again, I'm not going to over-spiritualize it, but God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, right? It's in, it's in his word, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So when we get to that point, and, it's, and I do it, man, I'm the, I can be the worst at it. I'm, I'm watching the news. I'm watching Washington. I'm watching what's going on. I'm, I'm watching what Biden's doing. I'm watching how I believe many in the radical left are working to destroy our nation, and many in the right are deceived, but God's still in control. And that spirit of fear can grip us, can make us think things and do things that aren't of what God's asked us to do. So we need to work. We need to pay attention. But Mike, I appreciate the point. We aren't to be led and driven by fear. We're to respond when we see wrong, but fear isn't of God. 843-661093. Let's carry this all the way to the top. Can we? Yep. Uh, you tell okay, me. I mean, you, you guys are in charge. I'm not. I'm just the take guy it, that okay. asks the questions and conducts the, con- the conversation. Okay, we're heading off into a new legislative year. Um, not session, but year, second year of this current legislation. What's left over, Philip? I mean, what do you expect to be waiting on you Tuesday when you get to Columbia? We had a meeting and we discussed uh, several things that are important. Of course, I'm on the budget, and that's where I would would start with. Uh, we've got some more. Uh, we've got a decent amount of money this year. It's a decent budget. It's not as big as the last two years. That was phony money anyway. But but we've got enough to take care of the normal pay raises for teachers and law enforcement, uh, plugging in a little bit into universities, trying to mitigate tuition so we don't have tuition increases, uh, and putting a lot of money into commerce because there's a lot of state, a lot of uh, in- industry that wants to come here and they need a little help with uh, with things. So those are, are big things. Now, from a delegation standpoint, we have our meeting coming up Monday, this coming Monday. And it's from 6 until 8 o'clock. It's a town hall. It's a listening session. It's, it's designed for us to listen to what your needs are. We listen on the radio to these calls. People can come and ask questions directly to the delegation. I don't know how many of the nine will be there. I know we've got commitments from several to be there. And so from 6 to 9 on Monday, plug in somewhere. Get involved with the, with elections. Get involved with you know the, your, your party here. Start making a difference. Come to these things and listen and talk. Call into this radio show. We've got to all plug in to to make a, a difference. The, the team approach is where it's going to be. And heck, we may have to get on a bus and ride out to Arizona and count votes. <laughs> Mike, the um the House's action, Jackson, the, the Senate's <laughs> where things go to to stall and slow down. Uh, what do you expect to be the priorities of the Senate? I think that the number one priority is going to be. Public safety, at least from my perspective, um, it's going to be public safety and it's going to be bond reform being a part of that. Um, there is a very thin line of lawlessness and law abiding people in this country. And what we see in cities like Philadelphia and Chicago and Portland, San Francisco, um, that could bleed here if we're not careful. Um, you see in Florence County with actually within the PD, one is Florence, one is Dillon in the last week. We've had two officers that have been physically assaulted. One was doused with with um, lighter fluid that attempted to be put on fire, and the other was attempted to be assaulted. 
Um, law enforcement is under siege, and they've got a really tough job. We need to do all we can to keep our community safe. That's what I hear from our constituents. Keep us safe because the, the good jobs, the good schools, the hospitals, the infrastructure, it doesn't matter if we're in fear of getting robbed at the gas station. We've got to be safe. Okay, we've got a couple of minutes. Let's send this with a, with a call if we have one. Rujan in Darlington, you're on with the delegation. Hey, guys. Happy New Year's. Happy New Year's. Uh, listen, listen. I really, really appreciate the fact that you guys are straight shooters. I mean, there is no no other radio show that I listen to at any point. But but I the, the delegation, uh, you know, you guys come on there and you talk and you you're not afraid to take calls and you answer all the questions. You don't you know you might not have all the answers, but you answer the questions. But uh, I really want to tell you guys, you know, going forward. You know, just keep it up. Keep it up. You're doing an excellent job. I'm proud of you. And and uh, this is the best radio show in the nation right now. I think there was a butt there. So let, let's get rid of Rujan after <laughs> you said that. And, and Rujan knows this. I mean, my, Mike nor Philip have all the answers. That's why I'm here. Uh, for for the real complicated questions no no but i mean sincerely and think about it guys um i mean these guys step into a studio nearly every friday and you know off the cuff in the blind take calls i think that's what people aspire for i think people have a burning desire to hear their elected officials shoot them straight and at times it may not be what they want to hear at times you may get it wrong but i think authenticity and shooting people straight is woefully lacking in the world of politics. Yeah, I get tired of political speak. I guess you can tell. <laughs> I, uh, but I, I'm blunt intentionally. Yeah. You well, know, and I'm not trying to be rude. Like, you know, sometimes Trump feels like you're getting a little rude. I think it's important. People want to hear it straight from the top. Mike, about 10 seconds. Yeah, we need to be accountable to the people who put us here. Very well said. Thanks to both of you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays, right, Josh? That's right. You got big plans for the weekend? No. Okay. Rev, you got big plans for the weekend? Not really. Well, what is big plans or what are big? Let me be grammatical. What are big plans uh, for the weekend? Uh, for me, it'd just be like if I had a plan to do anything other than be at home. That'd yeah. be big plans. I'll probably be keeping up with transfer portals and NIL deals and whatnot. Being a college football junkie, this is crazy crazy times to be a fan college football is the modern day wild wild west as we speak we've had um city council members we've had a member of congress on the air with us we've had two members of our local delegation in studio with us and now we're honored to have our lieutenant governor the second best lieutenant governor this state has ever had <laughs> um pamela uh evett is with us good morning ma'am how are you Good morning, Ken, and Happy New Year. Same to you. So, so yeah, you'll be known as the second best lieutenant governor ever. On the, <laughs> you'll be the best ever on all the other shows, but but the second best <laughs> on, on this show. I do want to go be down. The best dressed though. Can I be the best dressed? I do take pride. Well, in I, I'm sure you're much better than that than I am. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> you have when, to fight with Andre on well, that. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, you know, dressing up to me is a shirt with sleeves. But I'll let you and Andre decide who is the uh, who is the best dressed former or current lieutenant governor. I do want to ask you this, because I'm interested, and this is a bit self-serving. When I got elected in 2010, the lieutenant governor ran separate of the governor, and they chair, excuse me, they presided over the state senate. What exactly does the lieutenant governor do today in conjunction 
with the uh, with the elected governor? So basically, we work on uh, economic development together. We make sure that businesses are being taken care of. So you know, that's my sweet spot. Can um, business is where I came from. I understand it. I know what businesses need to be successful. And so the governor's made it a point that he wants me to be out there and talking the business lingo with businesses, making sure we're doing everything we can for them. And if we're not, getting them the help they need through government. And I've really enjoyed that. And that's kind of what keeps me going every time somebody says, hey, thanks so much. You really solved this for me. You got me to the right people. Um, so every day for me is really different. And for me, I don't know about you, and I know Andre really like presiding in the Senate, and I love our senators. Mike Rickenbaugh is a dear friend. Uh, but I think uh, I would get bored very quickly sitting in the Senate. So being out and about and helping businesses grow, uh, that's kind of what I love to do. Yeah, I've always said torturing someone is make them preside over the Senate for, uh, for three <laughs> consecutive days in a given week. In, in the realm of business, and I'm going to get your take on this. We were talking with um, – with Philip and Mike earlier, Jay was not with us this morning. One of the concerns I have, and I'd love to get your take on this, as South Carolina grows and as the EPA becomes more radical, I'm concerned about the the trickle-down effect of EPA regulations and, and some radical, I don't know, um, climate change agenda inhibits our ability to provide affordable and reliable energy to an economy in a state that is growing as fast as South Carolina. Do I have a reason to be concerned? You have a big reason to be concerned. You know, it's something that the governor and I have been tackling, and I have really been doing a deep dive on energy. And Ken, it's no secret to anybody. If we can't ramp up our energy production, we can't grow. And I was invited to speak at an energy summit in Utah in November, um, or really October. And what we sat and really talked about is, you know, how do we, well, first off, let's back up. The Biden administration has just been horrible for energy production. When you turn off natural gas, you turn off dispensable energy. So it makes it really hard to ramp up on demand. And if you talk to Keller with Dominion, you talk to Mike Callahan with Duke, you talk to Jimmy with Santee Cooper, they're going to tell you, they're going to say the same thing. So, you know, what we, what we see uh, and what states, especially Republicans in blue states that were part of this forum were really nervous about is that business is going to be running out of blue states. So Gretchen Whitmer putting down the hammer when it comes to green energy and um, trying to make sure that she takes everything fossil fuel related um, out of Michigan. Basically, their manufacturers are looking for new places to call home, because if that happens as aggressively as she's trying to make it happen, going to really be hard to do business because you have to have reliable affordable energy or businesses can't 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 continue to operate one of the political hot potatoes that the gop has not done the best job of handling and i kind of saw this coming was once the trump court overturned roe v wade states have to begin deciding the issue of abortion i mean it's constitutional it's the way it should be done but, but I was concerned that the Republican Party was not going to be able to take yes for an answer. And we struggled at finding some common ground on where we stand as it relates to life. The one thing I don't think we saw coming, uh, Governor, is the fact that eventually the conversation would digress into transgenderism and gender mutilation and gender dysphoria. Um, the reason I'm asking this, there was a bill passed by the Ohio General Assembly that a Republican governor vetoed 
that would allow a parent to uh, enter into a medical contract, their minor child, for a sex-altering operation. Is that something a lieutenant governor of South Carolina should be aware of, should begin forming opinions of? As red as South Carolina is, it's not immune to some of the radicalization of politics in America today. I'm not asking you where you stand on, on gender mutilation of a minor child. I think I know the answer to that. But but is that yeah. something, um, Governor, that you should be aware of and paying close attention to as, as part of the national discourse? You know, Ken, that – well, I'm completely against doing any of that. I think you know where I stand on that. But you're right. We have to understand everything that could be coming our way, Right. Because the best defense is a good offense. And to put things in place to stop problems before they come problems is always, always a good idea. You know, you, you know, we can sit here and blindly say, well, that'll never happen in South Carolina. But I think, you know, you talked about Roe v. Wade and the overturning through Dobbs. I truly believe when Roe v. Wade was adopted in, what was it, 1974, nobody ever thought that we would be talking about abortion in the ninth month, right? Like everybody would have thought, like, that's crazy talk. And here, here that's what we're dealing with in 2024 is states that want to push that envelope all the way to the, you know, the moment of birth. And so you're right. You have to think about it. I think every lieutenant governor, I'm very disappointed. I didn't read the bill. Uh, so, to, you know, with all clarity, I don't know exactly everything that was in it. But the fact that a Republican governor um, wouldn't take every opportunity to, you know, protect children in his state is rather disheartening. When I go to, to the coast of South Carolina, I encounter a lot of people who didn't grow up in South Carolina. Fine. I mean, we're, we're a great place to live. People have decided that. They moved down here. But I bumped into someone a couple of weekends ago, and, and we began a discussion about politics. And here's the way the conversation went about and I think it's, it's very important, uh, not important, but it's very interesting to our listeners to know where you stand on this. The, okay. the, the person asked me a question and said, hey, as a former politician in South Carolina, I bet you're torn between having a former governor of South Carolina as a Republican nominee for president and Donald Trump. I responded by, I'm not torn at all. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that today Donald Trump needs to be our nominee Donald Trump needs to be president. No disrespect to our former governor. No disrespect to the current governor of Florida. But I believe that right now, at this moment in time, we need, uh, for lack of a better description, a bull in a china shop. You say what to that? I say you're 100% spot on. You know, no disrespect to anybody, but President Trump is the man for the job. And, you know, we can't afford somebody to be learning. And I remember, Ken, I don't know how the experience was for you, but I came out of the business world, grew a national company, uh, was sworn in as lieutenant governor. And the first day I sat in that office, I thought, well, what do I do now? You know, like, how do I how do I start helping the people of South Carolina? How do I start helping business? What do I do first? We can't afford that luxury in the White House right now. President Trump knows exactly what to do. And, you know, I was with him at the Palmetto Bowl, and it's always great to be with the president and, and host him. And, you know, we sat and talked about it. I said, Mr. President, tell me what you want to do on day one. But more importantly, tell me what you want to do on day two so that I can tell people when they ask me. And I could say, I heard this right from the president. And he said, on day one, he goes, there's so many things to do, but I will close down our borders. 
And he goes, and I will turn on energy production. He said, and that becomes a game changer for us as a nation. He says, and then we got to start cleaning up the mess on day two. We don't know who's in our country. We don't know why they're in our country. We don't even know what we can possibly do with them. He goes, so we got we got to address that problem on day two, and it has to be on the very top of the list. So what I say is he is the right man for the job. He needs to be our nominee, and I want to see everybody come around him. It's, it always, always gets under my skin when you have somebody like Chris Christie that says, I won't vote for him. Because who is your alternative, right? If, if, if he's our nominee and Biden is their nominee, to, to be that um, self-absorbed that you would say, I'm not going to vote for the man, then you might as well be voting for Biden at that point. And so I just want all Republicans that are listening to say, listen, it is okay in a primary to have your favorite. And when that person doesn't win, the very next day, you pick up the Republican flag and you make sure that our nominee gets marched into the White House. Because it's bigger than any one of us. This is really about the future of this nation, and it's the future of our children. You stuck that landing, ma'am. Um, <laughs> most of our listeners are politically inclined. If they want to know uh, specifically what the lieutenant governor is doing, how do they keep up with what is going on in your office, um, where you are, what you're about, what you're doing? So they can reach me on all of my social medias. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. If you put in my name, I'm going to come up. Um, and and I really can I like to approach everything that's happening with a sense of positiveness. Positivity is exactly where I'm coming from. We have so many great things to talk about. And I think the reason people run away from politics is because every time you turn on the news, it's all gloom and doom. It's so terrible that people are running away from it. I want to talk about all the great things that are going on. The fact that we're tackling energy, we continue to grow, our numbers are sky high. U-Haul just put us um, in the top three of states that people are moving to. We got a lot of great things to, cha to champion, and I want to get people excited about being South Carolinians, excited about what's happening, and to really get involved in government and what's going on. Well explained, and you will join us, I think, about once a month is what we're going to try to schedule so you can kind of um, meet our listeners uh, your voters where they are. Thank you, ma'am, very much, and Happy New Ken, Year. Happy New Year. Take care. Thank you very much. We'll take a break. Right, Josh? We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. You know, the two interesting figures in the Republican primary, well, the, the figures that I find most interesting, I'm trying to be an insider here, uh, play a little inside baseball. I'm interested in where, I mean, Trump is Trump, right? I mean, we know the deal there. Where does DeSantis go from here? Where does Haley go from here? Does Haley risk coming to South Carolina, losing her home state by 20 percentage points? I mean, she can answer that. I can't. I mean, her and her team, her consultants, her strategists, her donors, I would imagine. Um, I mean, they, they'll have to answer that at some point in time. Now, now, once again, I mean, if you get a big surprise in New Hampshire and she wins that state, then you, you got to come to South Carolina and fight it out. I mean, she's not going to win South Carolina under any circumstance. I mean, there, there is, I mean, there's an unusual way we pick a president, and it's not like, you know, a national election. I mean, I'll agree with that. There's momentum coming out of Iowa. There's momentum coming out of New Hampshire. The New Hampshire electorate are not like the rest of America. You know, okay. I mean, I, I buy all that. I mean, I, I think there's, 
There's some historical precedent to that. Pat Buchanan won New Hampshire. Um, Donald Trump did not win Iowa. So there's some uniqueness in the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. It's almost like, let's see if we can trick them. You know what I mean? The Republican electorate have told us loudly and clearly who their favorite is. I mean, the Trump's at 60, what, 63, 4% in national polling. Um, But let's see if we can trick them. Let's have a caucus where we gather in cold basements of churches and we haggle about who you support and who you don't. And then let's go to the live free or die state (laughs) where there's only a handful of Republicans anyway and see if we can goof that, uh, you know, the process. Uh, it's just, it's kind of weird in the, in the way we do it. I've never been a fan of it. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I've never liked uh, the way we elect presidents or the way we win primaries. I think you have all the states vote on the same day or, or maybe in three or four separate days. But, but you know, there's, there's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of consulting to be done, a lot of strategy oh, to yeah. be employed. It, it's a little bit like I walked out of the state house talking about uh, – the, the, the current lieutenant governor a second ago, I remember I walked out of the state house. <laughs> I walked out of the chamber one day. I may have had to tap out early. That's inside Senate language. I had to tap out <laughs> early and ask McConnell. Senator McConnell was the president pro tem of the Senate. He took my place if I had to leave. And I had, I don't know, probably a football game to go to. <laughs> and I lived Something there important. a few minutes. I tapped out. McConnell took my place. And I walked through the lobby. And it was jam-packed. I mean, it was packed from one end of that room to the other. It's a very ornate room anyway. A lot of, um, you know, a lot of historical references. And, um, I mean, it's, it's, Rev likes this. I mean, the pomp and circumstance of, of American politics yeah, on do. full display. And I walked out of there. I get in my car to go home, and I start thinking about, okay, that's why things take so damn long. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody in that lobby was there not to see what, you know, what was um, transpiring between the good senator from Kershaw with the good senator from Maury, but rather, am I getting my way? I mean, am I getting what I'm here to get? Um, there were many lobbyists who told me, I'm not here to do anything this week or next. I'm here to make sure nothing's done to me. And I'm like, okay, I get it now. I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, yeah. it's just like it, it, the, the, the art of politics is so abstract, it's so uncertain is so unpredictable and i believe the way we pick the republican nominee is not in the party's best interest the the republican voters have loudly and clearly said via polls across the country who they want the voters of iowa are going to be facing a unique i mean it'll probably be real cold it'll be an all-day ordeal they'll be caucusing in all these varying places and you know um moose lodges and American Legion halls and church basements and and out of that comes, you know, once again, this intense haggling and, and then you go to New Hampshire. It's almost like, hey, I know who the front runner is, but let's see if we can do something to sidetrack it. And I don't know that that's the best interest of the of the party. I think our chances are better. The sooner we heal the wounds, the sooner we circle the wagons. Um and, and the two most interesting personalities in this election to me are Ron DeSantis, who I think has a bright future. Um, I mean, he's not as good as I thought he was. I mean, I thought he was a, you know, the kind of candidate that could beat Donald Trump. Took me a little bit of time to realize, no, he doesn't have that in him. Um, and then Nikki Haley. And I think Nikki probably did what is most clear to the observer of politics than anybody. Nikki chose, okay, DeSantis is trying to have it both ways. 
I know I've tried to have it both ways, but I'm declaring my path, and I'm an establishment Republican, and I'm going to get the funding and the backing of the neoconservative war machine. That'll keep me in the race for a long, long time. I may run out of ideas, and my ideas may not be popular with the electorate, but I'll always have money. I'll always be funded enough to get to the next state and the next state and the next state. But but how much can DeSantis forsake of his political future losing to Trump in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina? How relevant is Nikki Haley if she loses her home state by 20 or 25 points? Here's what I think it does. I think the heir apparent to America first is someone other than Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. I think that's where we, I mean, I think the big winner in that, Josh, is a Vivek Ramaswamy or a J.D. Vance. I mean, I think if the wheels completely come off of the Haley and DeSantis campaign, and I think they will, um, then I think the the voting public who kind of, I mean, Rev would be one. I mean, Rev said, you know, I wish DeSantis had not run, and you know, mm-hmm. maybe Trump picks him as the VP nominee, and he's our guy next time. I don't know how strongly you feel about that now. I mean, you're less certain that's the case now than you were. Yeah, but I haven't, you know, all the attacks and everything on DeSantis, I haven't really bought into that. My, my feeling really hasn't changed. I mean, he's not a great campaigner. That's the only thing that's become obvious throughout this This You this know who time. he reminds me a little of, and you can relate to this. You've sat in this studio with me a thousand times. I mean, more than a thousand times by now. And about six or seven times, we had former, talking about him this morning, former council member James Schofield. Mm-hmm. James Schofield was full of fact, not a lot of personality. James Schofield knew the deal from one side to the other, but not a lot of flair. He would come in here to be on, to get on the radio and he, for five minutes, right? And he would have a stack of papers that he would spread out on the table. I mean, he had his facts ready to go for a five minute radio interview. And, And I've always said about James Schofield, you could accuse him of being wrong. You can't accuse him of not being prepared. And I think right. I think DeSantis has that mindset. I mean, he's a technocrat. Um, he's most comfortable talking about the minutia of the legislation. No, you're wrong. We didn't do that in Florida. Here's what we did, and here's paragraph nine and ten and eleven, and why we did it. Um, I, I, he's just not as good on the stump as I thought he would be. And and I'm not saying that's good or bad. I mean, it's it, there's a, there's a weirdness about politics. It's almost like. The guys that need to be running the government can't get elected. The guys that can get elected, um, present company included, probably don't want to be in charge of, of leading the government. It, it's the weirdest phenomenon you could imagine. And I think Drew McKissick says, thank God for people who are willing to run for office. In particular, I thank God for people who are willing to run and pretty good at it. Um, and Trump is just, for whatever reason, a very natural, a natural politician. Now, now would Trump-style work? 10, 20 years ago, probably not. And and I've got this theory uh, that I believe Trump came along, not just when we needed a disruptor, but Trump came along when we were looking for somebody to tell us what they really thought. Subconsciously. I mean, I don't think the voters asked. I mean, I don't think Robert Cahaley called voters and said, hey, how important is a candidate who tells you or you believe he's telling you what he really believes or thinks or will say what's on his mind? Or the Republican elected official who had said, elect me and I'll do this, and then it never happened. Well, I mean, we believed all the other guys were phony, Rev. We, we just, not, not, not personally and professionally. My best tweet ever was yesterday. 
This is great. Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's great, great if you're sarcastic. I know. So Mitt Romney is standing with his back to the camera, and he's got some cowboy look at. Now we know damn well Romney's not Josie Wales, but he's standing looking out over the horizon, and he wishes the state of Utah a happy birthday, and he says, "You know, the great and beautiful state of Utah. I want to take the time to wish it a happy birthday." And I'm going like, we can't see your state because you're standing in the way. <laughs> Perfect. You're p- such a public servant. If you're wishing your state a happy birthday and you want us to see the beauty and grandiose of your state, get out the damn way. But he's standing center <laughs> screen, hand on hips. Blocking half the mountain. And I'm going to myself, how phony is that? <laughs> I, mean, he, I, I think he may even have a fedora on. <laughs> For you folks in family, go, that's a cap. That's not a car. That's a cap. That's a hat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a fedora story. Um, oh, dude. Of course. Of course. <laughs> we had a party one night, and, and one of my good old boy buddies wore an Indiana Jones hat. And and, and one of my more sophisticated friends came up. My good, this has always been a story of my life. I've got these somewhat sophisticated friends, but the majority of my friends are good old boys. So one of, all of my good old boys, we're drinking a beer, we're watching a game, we're doing something, a bunch of us, and I got a few of my sophisticated friends. Um, and one shows up and tells my good old boyfriend, hey, that's a nice fedora you got. And my good old boyfriend said, thank you. So we get together the next morning at work, and I tell my good old boyfriend, you didn't know what he was asking you. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? I said, that guy that said he liked your fedora. You got no idea what a fedora is. <laughs> nah, I don't. <laughs> but, but it sounded like a compliment, so I told him, I said, the fedora's your cap, man. It's the Indiana Jones hat. You, oh, okay, you know that. I forgot you're better than I am. You know what I mean? got all defensive oh, yeah. about it. So there's a fedora story uh, for you. 84366, I'm sorry. I was going to ask you a question. You talked about walking through the lobby of the State House as Lieutenant Governor. So I'm surprised you did that, you know, when, when the State House was open and full of people. My, my question is, A, when you walk through as the sitting Lieutenant Governor, do you get you know, pretty much surrounded, attacked, and approached Sometimes by people you that, do. that have something to say. They're, 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 they're to do their business, right? Well, they're, they're, the lobbyists well, and the here, Here's what I got attacked for. The lobbyists would come to me and said, hey, Senate Bill 3711 doesn't need to be in this committee. Uh, and why? Well, I mean, it, it, it was always these personal relationships. And they, and they knew the minutia of... Yeah, well, I mean, they, they knew it better than I did. <laughs> I mean, they knew it much better than I did. And and I, I mean, I'm leveling with you. I mean, you want to be the mayor of realville you got to be real there was some of the lobbyists i liked and would try to help there was some of the lobbyists i didn't care much for and wouldn't try to help uh one in particular came to me one day that i didn't care much for and he'd earned that to be honest with you he came to me and asked me about a bill that you know it was borderline finance or labor uh, llr and he didn't want it in llr he'd rather have it in finance and i went to gossett who was the chief of uh, i mean excuse me clerk of senate and i said hey i know there's some discretion here but I don't want to help this guy. I mean, I don't want to help him at all. I'd rather put it over here where it dies, and we put the bill over there where it dies. And I kept telling I'm trying, man. I'm trying all I can. No, I wasn't. I wasn't trying <laughs> at all. And there were some others that I'd go out on a limb for because I just felt like they were genuinely trying to do uh, best by their clients, and I thought it was best uh, for the state. But, but no, nah, I mean, yeah, you get I – mean, the lobbyists are doing their job. I mean, they're absolutely doing what they're paid to do, and they're not breaking any laws. They're not violating any regulation. I mean, the courts have decided the government, uh, you know, those people have a right to petition their government. I mean, the Roberts Court basically said in Citizens United, corporations are people, right? And they have a right to petition their government. Um, I believe if you wanted to clean up a lot of what's wrong with government, 
I hope two people in particular aren't listening right now. I think lobby reform would get us well on our way. Um, I've got this weird idea about, we're talking about the vaccine earlier. I believe, I mean, America's one of the few nations on earth that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise directly to consumers. I would do away with that. I mean, I know that's a regulation. We're deregulators. We're limited government. We don't want the government doing all this and all that. Pfizer's not advertising on CNN other than to get preferential treatment for their product. And it's not news any longer. The news is tainted or stained by Pfizer buying, you know, a million dollars worth of advertising on CNN every single week. How does CNN honestly and objectively criticize Pfizer for what? And I'm just using them as an example because the vaccine, and we know uh, the cor- corporate profit they generated. But I, I mean, it, it's a little bit the J.D. Vance theory, Rev. What are the conservatives going to do if we made a decision? The debate of limited government's over. I mean, I think we all agree to that. We're not going back to an age or era of a limited government. So if we're not going to have limited government, what do I want government to do? And I want government to what? Advantage the American worker, advantage the American family, advantage the American way of life. And I don't believe Pfizer buying influence on CNN is good for the American worker, the American family, the American way of life. So, so if I've decided now in my heart, philosophically, I don't want government to do any of that. But, but I've got to, do, I've got to be pragmatic. I've got to say, well, philosophically and ideologically, I believe this. But in the real world, I mean, I'm not going to put government back, back in a bathtub. So, so, so let's, let's pass legislation that says to Big Pharma, you can't advertise directly. How many negative stories would there have been about the Pfizer vaccine if Pfizer was not allowed to buy advertising on some of the major news networks and media outlets in America today? Ask yourself that. And if you say, well, it would have been the same, you're dumber than I am. You're dumber than I am. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Billy and Florence, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Great show as always. But uh, I think you hit on something, both the uh, lieutenant governor and Ken, you did at the same time. Uh, you know, Obama, I mean, let's straight obama's you know ruined this country his eight years was the worst president of our lifetime but you know being a a a military guy myself um we got to look at doing the trump getting him in there uh i think he's learned from his mistakes but not just that but somebody that can carry on not not the trump legacy but the republican to uh to to actually um his vice president who can carry on you know for the next eight years, so we look at a, a 12-year run. It's, that's the only way we can we can right the ship that this uh, country's going on. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, I appreciate the show, and uh, I'll take it off the air. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, and I've argued, and this would have been Thigpen's argument. I mean, Dr. Thigpen and I would have conversations off the air, and he understood it. I mean, he knew I was a populist at heart, but he would always say populists always get their feelings hurt at the end. I mean, they always get let down at the end. This, this enormous energy builds and swells and, and affects change in the short term. At the end. And you all have parties because populism has changed the course of the nation. And then it dissipates. And then it dies. It's a sugar high. Historically, that's how you look at populist political movements. I, I'm hoping that this isn't a sugar high. I'm hoping that the animus a lot of Americans have toward the federal government leads to a sustained 
and thinking political movement. Now, I, I once again, I can't promise anybody anything. I don't have any idea where we go from here. That's my out, guys. I mean, that, that's my get-out-of-jail-free card. Nobody will ever accuse me of saying, well, I know this is what will happen, or I know that's what happens. You end up eating the majority of those words. There is no doubt in my mind that today as we speak, populism is the central ingredient in the most powerful political force on the planet today. I mean, there's no denying that. James Carville says over and over, redundantly, Carville says, the only excited people now are Trump voters. I mean, there aren't any excited DeSantis voters or excited Haley voters or excited DeSantis, excuse me, um, Biden voters. I mean, the only excited, enthusiastic voter is the Trump voter. And that is the populism that they're, they're sensing, they're feeling, they're relating to. It's in their bones. They wanted to change. They're going to do whatever it takes to get that guy back in there. Are there enough of them? I think there is. Some don't, but there's no doubt they're intensely motivated and passionate, but that's populism. And Thickpen always said, and he's a political scientist with a long career, and he always says, you folks always get let down in the end <laughs> because once that sugar high's over, it's back to R's and D's and small government and the traditional and historic uh, and legacy political debates. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington, good morning. You're on. Hey, Ken. Um, I just wanted to ask, since it's the weekend, and I'm so disappointed with NIL, but I am, I, I did like it for our basketball team. You going to watch the game, you think? I'll probably watch the game. I think it's a noon tip. Yeah, I'll probably watch the game tomorrow. It's on CBS, which is a little different. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I'm kind of, if we win, I'm very hopeful because the best trip I ever took for the Gamecock was to Phoenix. That was the most fun, of, I think, and excited I've ever been. Mine would have been to Madison and Square Garden they, to get to the Final Four. I went to those games in Madison Square Garden and it was euphoric. It is. I mean, I, I'm the biggest football fan you could imagine, Nick, but I've never had more fun as a USC fan going to Madison Square Garden and watching the Gamecocks play to get to the Final Four in Phoenix. And it, this is just a big game with the way our schedule is. Well, if you can go you 500 in the conference, you got a chance to go to the dance. You're right. But that's going to be hard with this conference this yep. year. Yep, you're right. I just was, I just was wanting to ask a question. Well, have a good week. Thank you, Thanks Nick. So I appreciate that. You know, I want to, I mean, I know we, at the beginning of our shows, spend some time talking about sports. The, the NIL is, I mean, you're talking about Trump disrupting the body politic. NIL is Trump. <laughs> I mean, it really and truly is. Um, the kid went from having no leverage to all the leverage. Him having no leverage is just not right. Him having all the leverage is not sustainable. I mean, the kid right now is kind of the equivalent of the populist movement. He's got he's on a sugar high. I mean, he can tell teams, hey, I may come, may not. I'll sign today and change my mind tomorrow. I mean, it's the wild, wild west. I'm just hopeful that there will be some equilibrium that we find in the long run that gives the kid some leverage, but not all, all the leverage that he has to honor some of these commitments he makes to athletic schools and programs, but the NCAA is the culprit. I mean, they're the ones that ask for all of this. I don't know anybody that exclusively blames the kid. I think some people believe the kid's taking advantage of that. Well, I mean, how many kids wouldn't take advantage of not having any money, 
and then you can have all the money you could imagine. Um, you know, I'd be in that long line. If there are two lines, hey, here's the line with the money. Here's the line with the honor and integrity and decency. I'm in the line looking for the money. That would be the long line, I, I would imagine. But the NCAA refused to give an inch and refused to give an inch and refused to give an inch. And they, in their bylaws, they actually said uncompensated athletic performance is part of the student-athlete's experience. Bull blank. The universities were generating billions of dollars in revenue. The universities were raking in million dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, and they weren't paying the performer. And the value of the scholarship probably was commiserate to what a coach was being paid or what the university was bringing in in the good old days. But now it's different. And a head coach making $10 million, assistants making 2 or $3 million, university athletic departments, you know, getting 80 or $90 million in television revenue, and the guy doing the work is not getting any of, of the compensation, the absurdity of that. I mean, it's embarrassing that we allowed that to be as normal as it was. Now the collectives are going to have to stay in place because if the collective doesn't provide the university the layer of insulation, you're going to have collective bargaining. You're going to have overtime pay, health insurance, days off. Uh, it's going to get very complicated if the university becomes the employer and the player becomes the employee. I mean, it, that, that may completely destroy the game. The collectives are going to have to be that this kind of layer of insulation that continues to compensate players, I would imagine in a different way moving forward, but um, but that's kind of where we're headed. Do we have time for trivia? Uh, we got about two minutes and 10 seconds. Cue the music, Josh. Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. The correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of Takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. We're talking about the Electoral College. Talking about the migration shift happening from blue states to red states. Two states in America split electoral votes. Give me one of the two states. Two states in America split their electoral votes. Give me one of the two states that split their uh, allotted or allocated electoral votes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Hi, you are on. What's your guess? Texas. Nope, not Texas. 843-661-0937. Hi, uh, you're on the air. What's your answer? I'm going to say New Hampshire. Nope, not New Hampshire. 843-661-0937. Hello, you're on. What's your answer? How about Alaska? Nope, not Alaska. 843-661-0937. Got to wait for the lines to clear. Okay, I'm sorry. That's all right. Here we go. Hi, you're on the air. What's your answer? Hey, Utah? Nope, not Utah. Hi, you're on. What's your answer? Maine. You're right. Maine and Nebraska split their electoral votes. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Uh, I was Robert from Florence. Okay, sit tight. We'll get you back to No Shot Josh. He'll get all your information. I want to thank Pepsi of Florence. We kind of did that on the spur of the moment, but I had a question kind of framed up. I've been studying a lot apologize, of the Apologize, by the way. We had two callers on hold ready to go on the air, so we cleared the lines for them. So apologize to you if you're on hold. It's a good problem when you need more phone lines. Yeah, that's right? true. True. We need more and, phone and lines. And more time. Yeah, they need more cowbell. We need more phone lines. Some of the, hey, thank you uh, for what you did for us in 23. We're hoping 24 is bigger and better and badder than ever. The only way we get there is with you. So for those considering calling, 
That should be your New Year's resolution. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.